Hi, welcome to Culturally Determined on Blogging Hits TV. I'm your host, Artie Cohen-Wade, and my guest today is Dara Horn. Uh, Dara, could you please introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Dara Horn. I'm glad to be here. Uh, thanks so much for coming on. So you are a novelist, a writer, and a professor, and you can add into that uh, additional details as you want, but we're going to be talking about your new book, just released, People of Dead Jews, Reports from a Haunted Present. Um, I'm holding it up to the camera. Um, I really enjoyed it, although, as we were saying before, enjoyed. Um, there's a lot of, you know, dark and serious stuff in this book, although the, you, you include some some humor, and I think that <laughs> that's that's key. But um, so thank you for coming on. And um, so I guess, I mean, my first question would be uh, the title. I, I mean, I, I, this is a provocative title. Why did you pick it? Did you get pushback from editors or anything like that? And um and yeah, if you, are you are you worried about people, you know, not wanting to read this book on the subway or something? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, I if you find the title disturbing, you'll probably be even more disturbed by what's inside the book. Um, so it is it is a fair warning. Um, you know, I yeah, I actually did expect to get pushback on the title for my publisher, but they they really didn't, um, which really surprised me. Um, so and you know, maybe there are, maybe I, I could sort of do a psychological analysis about why, but, um, I'm, uh, you know, I'm glad that they, they let me do this. Um, the title comes from the first, uh, the first chapter of the book, which is an essay about Anne Frank, which sort of, um, the, the explanation for why I wrote that chapter sort of tells you a little bit more about why I decided to write this book to begin with. And maybe we should, are we ready to just go there? Sure. Sure. Okay. So, um, I was, I, I first started sort of thinking about this subject in 2018, and that was when Smithsonian Magazine asked me, to, they, they, they approached me and asked me to write an essay for them about Anne Frank. And I just remember getting this request and just feeling this total sense of dread because I'm like, wow, I really don't want to write about Anne Frank. And, you know, and I see you smiling. So I feel like you know, a lot of people maybe understand how that, <laughs> how that feels. Probably a lot of, you know, certainly a lot of Jewish writers might have that feeling. But I was like, you know, the, the logical thing to do would have been to turn down this assignment. But I'm, you know, I'm a writer. I'm not a logical person. So I was sort <laughs> of like, you know, why do I, why do I not want this? Right. This is, and, and what I've learned is, you know, as you mentioned, I've, I've published five novels. I'm really, I'm a storyteller. And I was sort of, what I've learned as for 20 years as a writer is that often the, um, the uncomfortable moments, whether it's in your imagination or in your experience are where the story is. So I'm like, why don't I want to write about it? Frank? And then I remembered this news item from the earlier in the year. So this was again in 2018 that of something that had happened at the Anne Frank museum in Amsterdam. So this is this like, um, you know, Anne Frank was, you know, hiding in with her family and other and other persecuted Jews in these rooms in this like office building in Amsterdam. And that building is now like this blockbuster museum where, you know, before COVID they had, I don't know, 2 million visitors a year. It's the kind of place you got to you know make a reservation months in advance. Um, so there was a young Jewish employee at this museum in 2018 and his employers would not allow him to wear his yarmulke to work. They made him hide it under a baseball hat. Uh -huh. And he appealed this decision to the museum board. And the museum board then deliberated about this for four months and then finally relented and let this guy wear his yarmulke to work. And I just remember reading that news story and thinking, you know, four months 
is a really long time for the Anne Frank house to ponder whether or not it was a good idea to force a Jew into hiding. And I'm just like, you know, there's something going on here. Like, this isn't a mistake. And so, you know, I wrote this piece for Smithsonian and the opening line of the, my piece for, that I published in Smithsonian, which is now the first chapter of the book, is people love dead Jews, living Jews, not so much. And it's about how there's this like requirement that Jews like erase part of their identity in order to participate in public conversations, in order to earn public empathy or respect. And so I was thinking about this. I published this piece. And then it was like, that piece came out in the one of their fall issues in 2018. And it was a couple days after that piece came out that there was the shooting at the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh. Uh-huh. And it was like within hours of that attack, the New York Times called me and was like, would you like to write about this? And it was like, I just sort of had this realization that, you know, all of my you know, mainstream editors at, you know, mainstream publications, like, they always just wanted me to write about dead Jews. Like, it just like kept happening again and again. You know, then there's another synagogue shooting. I became, as I put it in the book, I was like the New York Times' go-to person for the emerging literary genre of shul shooting op-eds. Like, I didn't apply for this job, right? And I was just and sort you of- you said, you said shul, just to clarify Yes, yeah, school. shul shooting. Yes, yeah, school, yes, yeah. Not, not school shootings. I'm sure yeah. there's another go-to person they have for that. But <laughs> unfortunately, this is a genre, right? So yes, it's- um. Yes, shul shooting op-eds. Um, and, you know, I was just like, why? And when I say, why did this, this keep happening? I don't mean, why do people keep, you know, shooting up shuls? That part I understand. The part I don't understand is like why I am expected to sort of like wax beatific and inspiring, you know, and like say something, you know, about this for the New York Times or wherever. And what I realized is it's like people like to tell stories about dead Jews that make them feel better about themselves. And so that sort of was the motivation for the book. And I just remember after I published that, you know, having a conversation with my husband where I was like, if I ever turn this into a book, like I should just call it people of dead Jews. And I was joking, (laughs) but he was like, yeah, I think that's a really good idea. So, I mean, you know, now it's time for, you know, making coffee mugs and beach towels. (laughs) So, and I should say, I also, I have a podcast, which is a spinoff of the book, which is different stories from the book um, called Adventures with Dead Jews. Um, and so, you know, maybe we could do, you know, beach towels and coffee mugs for that one as well at this point. Yeah. I, you know, the, there's all been all this, um, maybe the biggest book of the last couple months in publishing was the Sally Rooney book, uh, beautiful world. Where are you? And there were like beanies and, uh, tote bags and so forth <laughs> with beautiful world. Where are you? And yeah, maybe, maybe the title makes it so that, um, <laughs> th- th- there can't be that exactly, but I, you know, the people you're the first line of chapter one, people love dead Jews, living Jews, not so much. I, th- I think that is. Like, iconic in a way and you know it's, it's possible that, that that would be i mean it's epigrammatic and dark and funny and it, it, it you know encapsulates a lot of what you're going for um and okay so uh, I, another general question do you so okay so a lot of the pieces uh, the majority of them are were previously published as you know magazine or newspaper pieces or opinion pieces um, when, when did you yeah, realize that this was sort of a beat that you had established? I mean, you, I guess you sort of mentioned being the synagogue shooter go-to literary analyst, but when, when did you realize this was a theme that this could be a cohesive book and how did you, yeah, how did that come together? I mean, I sort of was just writing so many of these pieces and I was just getting angrier and angrier. Um, 
And I think the point where I realized like how much of what I was doing was sort of, you know, you, you know, I, I never wrote a nonfiction book before. I mean, this, I've, this is my sixth book, but all my other books are novels. And, you know, to me, it's like, I see myself as a novelist. I see myself as a storyteller. And this was just sort of like, you know, these like were to me, were just like, Oh, I'm like writing these little articles around the sides of things. But then I just sort of realized that like, all of these pieces are saying the same thing, right? They're on different subjects, but they're, they're really making this same argument, which is about how Jews are required to erase themselves in order for other people to feel better about themselves. Right. And what happened was I sort of just started seeing it in lots of different contexts. Um, and then I got to the point where I'm writing pieces where like, that don't really make sense necessarily for a mainstream publication um, because, oh, there's not a news hook or, you know, there's, you know, it's, there's, it's too long or there's too much to explain. So then that's when it sort of becomes like the piece I did about the Merchant of Venice. Um, that's a piece that's just in the book. Um, there's a few other pieces there. I mean, oh, there's even the piece, some of the pieces that were published before I've expanded and, uh-huh. you know, that changed and enlarged them. So, um, but I, I, you know, I did realize that there's, that there's something going on here. Um, possibly when I, did the trip to Harbin in China, which is, you know, maybe a different part of the conversation. I don't know if we want to get there yet, but um, I, you know, I did this reporting trip to this city in China that was built by Jews. Um, and today there is one Jew in this city and they now have invested all this money in building Jewish heritage sites. And I did that trip in January of 2019. And at that point sort of just realized like, that was a really long, I mean, that was a piece for a magazine, but it, for a tablet magazine, but that was, a, it's a, it's a very, very long piece. And I just sort of realized like there's, there's just a lot to say here and there's a lot to explain. And, and also like, um, I'm not a polemical, polemical writer. I mean, I, I'm, I really am a storyteller. So like each of these stories in this book, they are stories. Like I am sort of taking you as the reader on a journey. Like I'm not sort of writing an op-ed where it's like, here's four reasons why you should believe X. Like, uh-huh. I'm not like, like, I'm not a polemical writer. I'm also not a polemical person. Like I've never, I've never like won an argument at a dinner table. Like I'm not, you know, I'm just like, I'm not that person at all. Uh-huh. Like I don't really use Twitter. Like, you know, like I'm not, I'm not interested in that. So, but what I am interested in is sort of like, you know, taking you along with me on a journey and sort of showing you what I've, what I've seen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there's, I feel like we could devote like half an hour of discussing each of these essays. So we probably can't touch all of them, but I do want to get back to the Shylock one. I'm, Shakespeare is one of my interests. And, um, and that was maybe the one I just, I, the, I, I had the most issues with, but, um, but okay, well let's, so let's go back to Anne Frank, which is the first, the first essay. And this idea, well, you know, is it, is the Holocaust in popular understanding a, a Jewish tragedy, a universal tragedy or, or, so a combination of the two, I think I would have to say a combination of the two. Um, and is Anne Frank, how should she be understood as a paradigmatic victim of, you know, uh, intolerance, genocide, governmental violence, which is, I guess, maybe her current understanding, or a Jewish victim of Gentile, um, of Gentiles who murdered her. And I, I, I believe that um, throughout the book, you, you say that people were murdered in concentration camps by the Nazis, not they were killed. They often, um, the word killed is used instead of, instead of murdered. But um, uh, I, I, it, it does make sense <laughs> that murder is, is what was happening there, not, not just uh, killing. Um, yeah, so how, so I mean, that, that, this topic is, is super fraught. And, um, and yeah, but they sort of de- Deracinization is that a word? Is that would that be a correct word? Making Anne Frank 
into this symbol and her most famous quote, think about it at the end, I believe people are good inside or at heart or, you know, that's the ultimate famous quote from the diary. Like it, it does obscure the particular circumstances of her. And I mean, if people are going, I've never been to um, Denmark, so I've never um, uh, visited uh, a museum Holland. there. Holland, sorry. Yeah. Oh, and, yeah, um, yeah. and, but I have to think if, if people are going to visit this, um, this space, it has to be a very particular experience. You're seeing where these people hid in this, in this specific space, but are, and so it must be people who care about this one specific person who became the symbol of all Holocaust victims. And yet the, the, your, the story about the Jewish employee who was, they wanted him to cover up his yarmulke, um, makes it seem like they don't particularly care about the specific um, characteristics of of this one victim who came to stand in for. Well, I think for it's very generous. Say, yes. Well, I think it's very generous to say they don't particularly care. It's an act of it's active erasure. So the other example I gave in that piece, in the which is the first chapter of the book, is um, another incident that had happened at the Anne Frank Museum the year, year before in 2017, which is that they have an audio guide display. Um, where they've got, you know, I don't know, 15 languages for their audio guide. And, you know, like when you go to a museum and it says English and there's a little British flag and it says Francais and there's a little French flag, you know, they've got however many languages. You get to Hebrew, no flag. Yeah, no flag. So, and, you know, so this, I mean, this is not like, like I said, a PR mishap maybe, but not a mistake. Um, this we can assume they have conversations internally about whether to show an Israeli flag for the Hebrew translation or whether to omit it. And I assume the thinking was something like, well, there are a number of people in Europe and uh, who visit this museum who aren't particularly fans of the state of Israel. And so let's just not include that for- so like, Yeah, exactly. Reason. There are a lot of people who are not cool with living Jews and are totally cool with dead ones, right? Like, you know, Jews are awesome as long as they are dead. Or, you know, I mean, like, we don't like Jews doing who are doing yucky things, you know, like, I don't know, uh, living in Israel or, you know, maybe practicing Judaism. So this is exactly the editing I'm talking about. So this is what, like, that Jews are required to erase themselves in order to be acceptable. I mean, this is exactly what led to the murder of Jews. So this is, I mean, and this is the distortion, right? So the thing that you mentioned, this line from Anne Frank's diary, where it's, you know, that that's, you know, oh, I still believe in spite of everything that people are truly good at heart, right? This is the line that's like plastered on the walls of the museum. And it's like, you know, on the back of the book jacket. And, you know, as I put it in the piece, I'm like, you know, yeah, we love, you know, you know, this line, we find this line to be inspiring, which by which we mean it flatters us, right? It makes us feel forgiven for those lapses in Western civilization that lead to piles of murdered girls, right? Because, you know, basically this is, we have like absolution from a dead Jew, which, you know, by the way, is like the, found one of the foundations of a lot of Christian belief, right? Is that like, you know, so some murdered Jew has offered us grace. Meanwhile, but like the problem with that in that is that that's not what happened, right? What happened is not that a dead girl offered us grace. What happened is Anne Frank wrote that line about people being good at heart three weeks before she met people who weren't good at heart. Like that's what happened. She wrote that line three weeks later, she's arrested, deported to Auschwitz and Auschwitz in Auschwitz, she met people who were not good at heart. So that's, first of all, the, the problem is you're obscuring this, this horror and you're making it seem like there's this like redemptive ending, which there isn't. But the bigger problem is also that like you are erasing an entire culture. So um, I used to ask people at my, so I have a doctorate in Yiddish and Hebrew literature. 
And a lot of my novels deal with Jewish, um, Jewish history and culture. And I used to ask people at my public events for these novels, um, you know, how many people here can name four concentration camps? And that's like something a lot of the audience can do. And then I asked these same people, how many people here can name four Yiddish writers? 80% of the people murdered in the Holocaust were Yiddish speakers. Uh, Yiddish is, uh, it's, I mean, Yiddish speaking culture is extremely famously literary culture. Why do we care so much about how these people died if we don't care at all about how they live? Uh-huh. And, you know, at the time, like I now look back at uh, how I asked my audiences and I think I was kind of naive actually because I didn't realize like, what a massive role that like Jews play in this like wider world's imagination. Dead Jews are playing a role. They're being used as a metaphor. People don't give a crap about actual Jewish culture. In fact, all of Western culture is kind of designed against Jewish culture. There's a, there's a lot we can say about that. Um, but this is, I mean, one of the reasons that Anne Frank is this like amazing, you know, popular Holocaust victim is also that this is a person she was actually quite atypical of people who died in the Holocaust and that she is not speaking a Jewish language, right? She's part of the 15% of Holocaust victims or 20% of Holocaust victims who weren't primarily speaking a Jewish language. She's not particularly religious, right? She's, quote, just like you and me. And this is sort of the flaw in the way we teach people how not to be bigoted, right? Because when we teach people how not to be bigoted, we're saying to them, oh, you know, like, the reason you shouldn't hate Jews is because Jews are just like everyone else. Well, the problem with that is that, you know, Jews spent 3,000 years not being like everyone else. And then what you're saying is, like, Jews are not acceptable unless they're just like me, right? And that's what we, I mean, this is the essay I wrote at the end of the book. Um, This is why, you know, it's, it's like, we're in an uproar when people shoot up a liberal synagogue in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. But when, you know, the are, you know, beaten up on the streets, we kind of don't care. Um, so that's a different, you know, and that's, and, and there's, I mean, we can talk more about that, but this is sort of like, this is this erasure, right? I mean, that's exactly, it's this requirement that Jews erase themselves in order to participate in, 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 in a wider non-Jewish world. And I mean, that's that's disgusting and we need to call it out and so that's what i that's what i'm really speaking about in that in that essay Mm -hmm. um yeah there's so there's a lot there um i'm thinking about yeah so i mean if if you so uh as longtime viewers and listeners know i am jewish and i was also an english major in college and if i had to name uh, how many jewish writers because i name, well the only one that comes to mind is shalom aleichem and i don't think i've ever actually maybe i've read one or two short stories but of course he's most famous because his work was adapted freely into fiddler on the roof the you know famous uh broadway show and and movie in which like sanitizes the uh the stories and and yeah spoiler alert, than the story is like one of the daughters kills herself for example that didn't make it to broadway <laughs> right i mean yeah there's a lot there but we could talk about that also <laughs> yes and, and and frank as a what would you call it assimilated westernized uh jewish girl who her family was living in uh a city and in western europe and um yeah this this was not the average uh, uh, victim of of nazi violence uh jewish victim of nazi violence who was you know more likely to be someone living in eastern europe speaking yiddish and um and yeah, so how did, I mean, it's, it's of course, historical happenstance that this girl wrote a diary that managed to be, um, survive the, the Holocaust and be published by her surviving father. No, 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 not historical happenstance. Okay, go, go ahead. Not historical happenstance, because that's what made it popular. Because in my essay about Anne Frank, I also have a 
half of the essay is about her work and then half of the essay is about a Yiddish diarist right. who also very similar situation, young person murdered at Auschwitz, his diaries discovered after his death, but you probably haven't heard of it, right? This guy was a, uh, a religious Polish Jew named Zalman Grudowski who wrote his diary in Yiddish. His diary is about his work as the as part of the Sonderkommando, which was this group of Jewish prisoners who were forced by the Nazis to escort other Jewish prisoners into the gas chambers and then remove their bodies and burn them. Um, and he was a religious man and he was like, you know, davening every day, praying every day. He was saying the Kaddish, the mourner's prayer for all the people whose bodies he had burned every day. Um, he died in a revolt that he had organized that of course lasted only one day. Um, and I mean, it's like, which of these diaries is more popular? Right. And so I, right. I never, I never heard of this this you sure had it. Although, it, I mean, not for lack of trying. There was a movie, um, uh, Son of Saul, that was based on his diaries. Oh, that's uh, interesting. Yeah. I, I was yeah. actually not just for thinking, lack of trying. It's not like no one told you about this. That, that, that <laughs> came out in 2015, I think. Or, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was actually okay, just listening to a podcast Yeah, yeah. They mentioned so, they were talking about. The yeah, Academy that was based on his there. memoir and a few other people's. Yeah, uh, so it was it was yeah. one of the foreign language nominees. Yeah. Okay. Well, we can think. Well, people don't like to think about having to uh, force other humans into gas chambers and then they die and then taking their bodies and their excrement out and burning it. That is horrible. Well, if you to think don't about. like to think about that, then maybe we shouldn't be talking about the Holocaust. Because well, that's what the Holocaust yeah. is. And so, and so the, the, the story the of the Holocaust, Holocaust is not like a feel-good story where we learn something wonderful about humanity. The, the Holocaust is about the destruction of European Jewish civilization by people burning somebody's bodies. Yes. Okay. I want to jump ahead a little bit to the, maybe the talking about the essay um, uh, where you visit the uh, the Museum of Jewish Heritage, that was called, which is in lower Manhattan. Yeah. The Traveling Auschwitz exhibit. Yes. And, um, Speaking of Auschwitz, as we <laughs> apparently are. Yes. Yeah. So that's it. So this is one of the later essays. And um, is it called Blockbuster Dead Jews or something like yes. that? Yes. Blockbuster yep. Dead Jews. Um, <laughs> yes. And um, I, I, I missed this because I was not living in the New York area when this came through, but I probably, just, you know, not the sort of thing I probably would have gone to see anyway. And I, I haven't been to the Holocaust museum. Um, I mean, is it, you know, just a personal reflection. I didn't see Schindler's list until I was an adult. Um, I think I just, it wasn't, I mean, I avoided this stuff. My parents didn't force it upon me. And, um, and yeah, I, I did, it wasn't naturally attracted to these kind of stories as a younger person, but, um, so this was this huge traveling exhibit, and and a, a strange aspect of this is that it was put on by a for-profit company that has done other, um, tra like blockbuster traveling exhibits, including one on the Titanic, and then this one called Bodies. Yes, which, which um, is probably most people have heard of it because it's like been all over, and it's this mm -hmm. thing where it, it's it's human bodies who have been like encased in plastic or something to, and then like sort of uh, peeled apart so you can see their internal organs. <laughs> in this very specific way and it yeah it was it's been all over the world and uh and oh but there's a super creepy aspect to it which is that the the bodies of the former living humans who are presented in this exhibit are seem to be most likely chinese political prisoners um yeah. and and so and no one really had a problem with this um and i remember when i first learned that i there was various times where I, someone was like a relative or something like do you want to see this body exhibit and i was like no it's actually really creepy <laughs> like, i don't know if you knew about this um and you don't focus on this part, but it is sort of like, yeah, that's just that that was able to pass and, and, you know, and probably like the Today Show did a story on like this interesting bodies exhibit where you can take your kids and see what the inside of a brain or heart or something looks like. Um, th there is a weird parallel here, but then this 
this company also did a Titanic exhibit that I guess was really big. Anyway, so they did this Auschwitz exhibit, and um, and, and talk about what you what your experience was. Um, yes, sure. So I mean, yeah, like someone thought this was a good idea for this for-profit European country. I'm sorry, for-profit European company. A Spanish, a Spanish company. Yeah, Spanish company. Um, to do this for-profit Auschwitz show. As you mentioned, this is the same company that made the bodies exhibit, the same company that made an exhibit about the Titanic. As I put it in the essay, I'm like, this is, of course, not a disaster porn company. It's an education company. And, you know, who could, who, who, who could possibly be against education? <laughs> I think I might be against education. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, so, yes, I, I, I went to this exhibit. Um, this was about... Uh, this is like before the pandemic, although I think it was open during some part of the pandemic. It's been there for a while. Um, yes. Well, this it's, is- it's at a museum that I, I've actually, I've not been to either, but it's called something like the Museum of Jewish Heritage or Remembrance. A living been, memorial to the Holocaust. That is yeah. in lower Manhattan. There's, I mean, so it's not the Jewish Museum, which is on the Upper East Side. It's no. a newer museum and various Jewish billionaires like Ronald Lauder and Bruce Ratner funded this thing. And it's, sort of explicitly a Holocaust museum, but not exactly a Holocaust museum because it already is the Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C. Yeah. And so it's a little, it's a little odd. And then, yeah, I'll just, here's just another, something that came back to me. So when I, I took a class in college uh, on World War I, the interwar period of World War II, and like the last three classes were about the Holocaust. And I remember the professor asking, why is there a Holocaust museum on the National Mall in the United States? Like, that's, that's weird. The Holocaust didn't happen in the United States. And in fact, the United States played very little role in really ending the Holocaust or what? So we can say, well, a lot of Holocaust survivors came to America and like we want, and so their, you know, <laughs> ancestors, uh, or not their ancestors, their, um, their children and grandchildren, you know, entered American society. They want to remember this, but why in the National Mall? Like that's where, you know, the Smithsonian is and uh, this new museum of African-American history. Why, why, are, why is America claiming some part of the Holocaust and what, what is the, and I, I actually, this was 15 or four years ago. So I don't exactly remember what his answer was if he had one, but it is somewhat strange. The Holocaust didn't happen here. Yes. Um, and it didn't certainly didn't happen in lower Manhattan. Yes. Well, okay. So there's a lot to say about this. And actually I have a couple of episodes of my podcast adventures with dead Jews, where we go into this. The first opening episode of my podcast talks about the children's exhibit at that, at the Holocaust museum in Washington. I have an episode that's about, um, Schindler's List, which was a movie that came out around the same time that that museum opened. So I talk about that as well in my podcast. So at Schindler's List, which Spielberg made simultaneously to making Jurassic Park, which is the topic of my podcast about that. It's the same amazing, if you think about it, an amazing accomplishment. Um, uh, I mean, back to back. yes, yes, but also like those movies are weirdly very similar. So anyway. Um, okay, well, I have yeah. to check out that podcast. Then. Yes. Um, but so, yeah, so there, there is this kind of, you know, the thing about when that, like when that museum in the National Mall opened, um, you know, in 1993, what I remember, so as a teenager, I mean, I was actually, and I, this is what I talk about in my podcast, I was actually sent to cover the opening of that museum by like a teen magazine. I was 16 oh, wow. years old and it was like, well, I got this assignment where they like sent me to Washington to uh-huh. That's wild. cover this. Yeah. Um, anyway, but the thing about like when, like, so a lot of those kinds of museums were opening in like the 1990s. And I just remember, you know, there was something like, you know, these museums were really grim, but I remember feeling like at the time there was this feeling in the community that there was something hopeful about these, um, these exhibits. You know, these museums had a very clear goal, which was they had, there was this, this idea that like, 
you know, people would go to these museums, they would see what the world had done to the Jews, where hating Jews would lead, and they would then stop hating Jews. So, you know, I mean, I think like, you know, it wasn't a ridiculous idea that like Holocaust education prevents anti-Semitism, but I think, you know, like, I don't know, 20, 25, 30 years later, we can kind of evaluate whether or not it was effective. And I mean, I don't necessarily feel that it was effective. And that's sort of the shocking thing. So that's, you know, is that like, I feel like that, that did not turn out that that did not really pay off in terms of if that was the investment the community was making at that time. What's disturbing about this exhibit, the one I'm writing about, the one that was in downtown Manhattan is that this was not like, you know, an exhibit like those where it was like, you know, um, I don't know, Jewish philanthropists or nonprofit groups that were trying to like underwrite a better future. Like this is a for-profit European company, which is like basically knows what my title of my book says. People love dead Jews. You know, they're looking to make money and they're a disaster porn company. And what's astonishing to me is like you go to this exhibit and it's like, what is, I mean, and this is an exhibit, like they did, as I put it in my piece, they do, they did everything right. Right. They had all these world-class historians, you know, they, it's very comprehensive. I mean, it takes hours and hours to get through this thing. I mean, as I put it in the piece, I'm like, it feels like a first march, which, which yes, there's a room about first march. <laughs> I mean, you're like, and I just remember feeling, and I'm in this exhibit, and I'm like, why do I need to know this in granular detail? And then I'm like, you know, okay, I know the sort of middle school reason. It's just like, oh, those who don't study history are doomed to repeat it. You know, we have to learn how low humanity can sink. I'm like, okay, you know, I went to public middle school. Like I've, I've been taught those things. But then I'm thinking like, you know, there's something else going on here. And what we're really doing here is giving people ideas. I don't mean ideas about how to kill Jews because that, you know, those, there's no shortage of ideas like that, as I put it in the piece, you know, going back to the book of Exodus where, you know, Pharaoh figures out that he can like drown Hebrew baby boys in the Nile and nobody cares. Right. So, I mean, like no, that, that's old. Nobody, you know, that people know that, you know, but what I said is giving people ideas about standards, right? Yeah. The Holocaust is really bad and we shouldn't repeat it. And what that means, what that has come to mean is that anything short of the Holocaust is like not the Holocaust, which means the bar is rather high. Right. I mean, right, and then right. I have like in my piece, I have like, the whole list of like, here's a bunch of things that are not the Holocaust. And it's everything from like, you know, shooting up a kosher grocery store to trolling people on social media to, um, you know, oh, I don't know, expelling all of the Jews from an entire country and seizing all their assets. Not the Holocaust. Right. Like, like I said, the bar is kind of high. So that's the first thing. But then the real problem in this exhibit that I saw is that like, you know, at the end of the exhibit, you there's just like this room where they have all these like Holocaust survivors talking on a loop about like how all you need is love and people need to love each other. And I just was like enraged being here in this exhibit, being lectured about love. I'm like, the Holocaust didn't happen because of a lack of love. It happened because entire societies abdicated responsibility for their own problems and, you know, decided to blame them on the people who historically have always represented the idea of responsibility, right? Jews are the ones who would introduce the concept of commandedness to the world, right? People really freaking hate responsibility. And this exhibit is like, yay, not to be responsible for anything. All we need is love. Like, you know, who's going to object to that? You know, this is like, I mean, it's kind of like the idea that, you know, educating people about the Holocaust prevents anti-Semitism. It's like, I, I object to that idea. And I object to the idea that all you need is love because this is absurd. And, you know, and then you start seeing like the deeper educational problem here, right? Which is that the world is only being taught about dead Jews. 
right? If you think about like a kid's social studies textbook, and I've got four kids in my house, I got a lot of these social studies textbooks lying <laughs> around. Um, you know, what does it say about Jews in a general education social studies textbook? Well, okay, there's a paragraph at the beginning of the book. If, it, if it's got an ancient civilization part, there's a paragraph about the Israelites. Doesn't mention that the Israelites and the Jews are the same people. You know, this is just like, you know, those are like dead people from a long time ago. They might as well be, you know, Phoenicians. Okay, there's that at the beginning of the book. And then there's like, as you mentioned, you know, there's like the chapter about the Holocaust at the end. There's no content to this civilization, right? Like, this is not, you know, we're not like, like I said, we care a whole lot about how these people died. We don't care at all about how these people lived. And the result of that is that living Jews are unacceptable. And that's actually what we're saying. And I could talk more about this, but like, think about how differently you would be learning world history if you learned about the presence of Jews in history. And I mean this very literally. Um, where I live in New Jersey, my children's school district, they have a, um, they do ancient civilizations in sixth grade. That's the curriculum. And with each of my children, when they've got to sixth grade, the ones who have gotten to sixth grade, um, each of them have like come home from school at some point during that year saying to me, you know, mom, I'm really confused. Because what they say is like, you know, in school, we're learning about all these great civilizations. We learned about ancient Egypt. We learned about ancient Persia. We learned about ancient Greece, ancient Rome, you know, ancient Babylonia. You know, we learned about these amazing civilizations and all these, you know, great thinkers and whatever, and all these things they accomplished. And then they're like, but mom at home for every single one of these great civilizations, we have a holiday about how they tried to kill us. <laughs> so I'm super confused. Are these great civilizations or are they not? And I'm like, the answer is yes. You know, because like, you know, yeah, ancient Egypt was a great civilization. They built all these amazing things. Guess how they built them? Slave labor, right? You know, yeah, ancient Rome would conquer the world. Guess what? When you conquer the world, you end up subjugating the native populations. Like this is true. And like, you know, if you learn this aspect of Jewish history, Jewish history has always been, a Jewish culture is a counterculture, right? Yes. It's a counterculture that runs through Western civilization and manages to endure and gives the lie to the idea that there's that there's this need to conform, right? Like, cause that's, and they rep in that sense, Jews represent the idea of freedom because it shows like, actually you don't have to believe what the rest of your neighbors believe, right? That's what it reveals. And I mean, there's so many things that Jewish history reveals that if it was included in a general education curriculum would totally undermine a lot of what you're teaching. So like, you know, for example, we learn in school like, oh, People, there was no universal literacy, you know, until the industrial revolution, you know, it wasn't until we had industrial production that we could really have the means to educate people, you know, before that, you know, only like the super rich were, you know, elite people were the only people who ever learned how to read. Well, Jews had universal, at least male literacy, universal male literacy since ancient times. In every community they ever lived in around the world, no matter how much money they had, every family, every, at least every male knew how to read since ancient times. So if you taught people that, suddenly that undermines your whole argument about like, oh, well, it's impossible for poor people to learn how to read until the Industrial Revolution. Like, it just undermines everything. So it's like, if you learned about Judaism as like an actual flourishing civilization that develops in tandem with the other cultures of the West, contributes to them, also takes from them, it's this interchange of cultures, like that would be like, an, it, would, it would completely change the way you think about the history of the West. Instead, it's being used as this sort of, you know, way of, as I said, making people feel good about themselves, right? It's just like, let's learn a nice lesson about humanity from this pile of dead Jews. And that's what I'm objecting to. 
Right. It almost sounds like you're calling for a 1619 project from of, of Jewish history. Um, you know, I mean, it would be more like a 3000 BC. Yeah, it would be like a, you know, a BCE. Thousand, um, thousand BCE project. Yeah, even, but, yeah. you know, and one of the, something, you know, which uh, really sort of blew my mind um, as, uh, like I said, a former English major was, you know, a lot, a lot of, you know, Christian culture is so omnipresent. It's like the, uh, you know, the fish asking what is water. And you note that a lot of the terms that we use to analyze literature um, like uh, uh, an epiphany, uh, an epiphanic moment, like uh, James Joyce uh, famously had epiphanic moments in his uh, in his works. Uh, a, a lot of these come directly from uh, Christian, you know, the Christian religion. And like, there are other ways literature could, un, you know, unroll, and and such as Jewish literature, or I suppose Islamic literature. And yeah, there's there's um, you know the uh, please fill in what the other some of these other terms that you identify as specifically christian origin which are now sort of supposedly value neutral um terms that we use in terms of storytelling and so forth but yeah there's you know there's other there's other narratives but just the fact that um western culture is so even even though you know the church is um much less powerful than it once was like we're swimming in this Christian culture, and if you're a Jew, maybe you notice that somewhat. And if you're not a Jew, it's it's harder to to, to see that. Yeah. So the what you're referring to is a chapter in the book that I have about um, literature, uh, fictional dead Jews, as I put it, which is about this. Um, it opens with this like message I once got from a reader of one of my novels. Was reading what a, bu- a book I it was uh, one of my novels that's about a pogrom survivor, and you know she's like you know I you know dear Miss Horn, I was reading your book and I got to this part about, you know, people beating a horse and I threw the book across the room. I feel really like the purpose of literature should be to uplift us and give us, you know, a redemptive message and allow us to laugh and enjoy. You know, that's what literature is for. And I wrote, I, I wrote a reply to this reader, which I did not send, <laughs> where I was like, you know, Dear Denise, sorry about the horse. It was a, a reference to a scene in Crime and Punishment, which is another book you might want to avoid, right? You also should steer clear of the Hebrew Bible. It's not a great book for people who want to laugh and enjoy. And so, but the really was asking the question, like, what is literature for? And as you say, and as I describe in the book, a lot of our expectations of just what literature does are do come from Christianity. So you mentioned the idea of like, that there's going to be this epiphany, um, you know, where the main character realizes something. It's even more basic than that. You know, like we want the good guys to be saved right? Like even that language of saving people, right? I mean, or this idea of like, you know, oh, there should be a moment of grace, right? I mean, there's this, these are these expectations. And I mean, I ran into this because I was in graduate school doing a PhD in comparative literature. And, you know, this is like the literary theorists I was studying were basing themselves on this like Christian tradition, even as you say, perhaps not even always necessarily consciously. And, you know, but, but the, work that I was focusing on was in Yiddish and Hebrew. So I wanna be clear when I say Jewish literature, I'm specifically speaking about, for me, what that means is literature in Jewish languages. So I'm not talking about like the sensibility of the writer. I'm like not getting into that. I'm talking about Jewish languages. Uh-huh. Um, and what I noticed is like the works I was studying in Jewish languages, <clears throat> they weren't doing any of those things. You know, like in like books I was reading in Yiddish, like the good guys were never saved. 
like that never happened, right? You know, like nobody ever had a mo- an epiphany. <laughs> nobody ever, nobody ever realized anything. You know, there was never a moment. There was certainly never a moment of grace, right? I mean, that like that stuff was just wasn't happening. And also in Hebrew literature, and even honestly, even in a lot of most contemporary Israeli literature, like that just doesn't happen. Like instead, like the story is structured. The the structure of the story is often instead around something really different, which is about around the idea of um, endurance and resilience. So the structure of the story, like you gave the example earlier in our conversation of the Tevye the Dairyman stories, um, you know, which, as you say, were the basis of Fiddler on the Roof, but like Fiddler on the Roof left out a lot. Um, and, you know, I mean, it's really devastating and depressing. Like I said, one of the daughters kills herself. That didn't make it to Broadway. Um, Muttle drops dead after like, you know, he and Saito have like four little kids and then he just suddenly has a heart attack and dies. Like that, that's not on Broadway. Um, Golda dies. I mean, like, you know, like everybody dies. I mean, horrible things happen. Uh, one daughter finally fulfills the father's wishes and marries a rich man who then like loses, you know, it's an, it's an abusive marriage and then he loses all his money in the Russo-Japanese war and they end up in a sweatshop in New York. I mean, it's just terrible. And, but what's amazing is like, in that whole story, like Tevye, like he never has an epiphany. He never like has a moment of grace, you know? He's certainly never saved, right? I mean, but instead he keeps like enduring, right? Which feels like really realistic and 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 humbling. And the amazing thing at the end of that book, which is a line that would never make it on Broadway, is um, that book ends with, you know, the whole structure of that book is Tevye's talking to the author Shoal Malaycha. And at the very end of the book, he, um, the very last line of that book is Tevye says to Shoal Malaycha, tell all of our Jews everywhere not to worry because our old God still lives. I mean, that's not going to make it on Broadway, but it's like the whole story is like this masterclass in resilience, which has a lot to do with Jewish history, right? I mean, it's sort of this like double helix of loss and renewal. And, you know, it's like what psychologists now call post-traumatic growth. So, you know, those are sort of the structures. I mean, so like, yeah, it's possible for there to be other structures for a narrative that aren't about, you know, somebody being saved or somebody having an epiphany. Right. And it, it, this is maybe a side note that I don't want to get into, but, you know, so much of contemporary culture and storytelling is, was, you know, Jews played a key role. And we, and we could say that superhero movies dominate Hollywood. Well, both superhero characters in the original comic books and Hollywood itself were both created by Jews who, who came to America. And, and those were sort of like disreputable industries to be into it. And, you know, obviously there's a Jewish influence on Broadway also, um, but sort of the, yeah, the more like popular populist, um, area like entertainment areas were sort of were seen as like second class or third class or something. So uh, like a lot of the early comic book creators were people who couldn't get jobs in advertising. You know, like illustrators who couldn't get jobs in at on Madison Avenue, and so they like were playing around in, in the gutter basically with this comic book crap that was seen as garbage for children. And you know, seventy years later, suddenly it's it's the thing that everyone loves the most. Um, and you know, they're, they're <laughs> it's it's so there's a weird irony there. Um, so, okay, well, uh, yeah, so many places I, I want to go with this, and we have we do have limited time, but let's. So I want to talk about one thing, a theme that comes through, and you've mentioned it pretty explicitly is is Jewish rage, and Jewish rage is not something that you hear about very often in the culture. I think it's it's. I mean, you hear we hear about white rage, and maybe we saw that on January sixth, and we hear about black rage, um, and. Jewish rage is sort of sub, I don't know, sublimated or something, or maybe we only hear about it in terms of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Um, but there's certainly, if, 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 if you're Jewish, there's certainly many things one could be outraged about um, happening in our history or uh, in contemporary life. 
um, such as these uh, horrific shootings that uh, happened at both synagogues and a um, and one that happened shortly before the pandemic in the city I'm in right now, Jersey City, it actually happened about a mile and a half from where I'm sitting. Um, and yet, I, I sort of I, Jews are sort of like, you know, it, it, the expression of Jewish rage is almost uh, not. I don't even know what it would be in, in a way. It's like it, it's just not part of of the culture. And it, and after there's a horrible shooting or something, it's like candlelight vigil, and you know, saying Kaddish or something, and then people move on. Does this, does this accurately, um, you know, bring with what, what you're writing about? Yeah. I mean, well, so there's, you know, there's part of this is the experience of being a minority and knowing that what it, it's, it's that erasure, exactly what I have been talking about for most of this conversation is this, um, that Jews are required to erase part of themselves in order to participate in public discourse. So that's part of it is, as you say, there's a lot of things that you can be outraged, it can be outraged about right but there's this is this sort of you know it's very it's honestly very similar to what you know most you know that uh, what a lot of people feel that you know where when you're not where it's the way you feel when you're not part of the power structure honestly because i will tell you that it's familiar to me as a woman um i know that when i do these like you know i mean public events where i'm speaking about my books which i've done for 20 years and now i'm doing them on zoom I know that as a woman, I need to be smiling at all times when I'm presenting my ideas in public, even though my ideas are not really worth smiling about. But I know that as a woman, my job is to make men feel comfortable, right? And that's the only way uh -huh. that men will listen to what I have to say is if I, if I assure them that I'm not being aggressive, right? That is an accommodation strategy that protects me by making everyone else feel comfortable. And that is an accommodation strategy that Jews in the diaspora have been doing for 2000 years, right? There's, um, you know, there's, th that's, that's what you're seeing is an accommodation strategy, right? And I think that that's, you know, there, that is where, um, you know, as you said, like, you know, if you, if, cause if you get angry at this, you don't know how other people are going to react, right? And the answer is probably not well, right? I mean, I think you see that. Um, and that is, but I mean, what I'm trying to do with this book is to say like, you know, this is absurd, right? And that this is part of the problem is that people are not allowed to be angry about these things, uh -huh. right? Because I think it's like, you know, anger is, you know, anger is an emotion that is a result of a perception of injustice, right? And that's what anger is, right? Cause like, you know, I've had this conversation with my kids many times. Cause like, and also like we live in this, like, you know, sort of, um, you know, in a culture, you know, in a culture where emotions are supposed to be dialed down. That's also something I noticed that I know from like my studies of Yiddish, that like when people translate Yiddish literature into English, you have to like remove half the exclamation points, right? <laughs> there's like, there is like, there's a, there's an expression of emotion that's expected in Jewish life that is not, that is, that we're supposed to, you know, in this like, you know, like American culture that we've like inherited from like British people that you're supposed to be reserved. And that's the only way to be acceptable. Right. So this is a cultural issue. So, um, you know, so this is like, you know, you have to sort of dial it down, but you know, there is like, you know, anger is an, is an expression of, is an expression of injustice. Right. You know, I remember having this conversation with my kids where they were in school and they're just like, Oh, you know, in school we were learning, like, you know, you're not supposed to be angry. I'm like, you know, who was angry? Moses was angry. Right. Like, Moses kills the Egyptian taskmaster who he sees beating a Hebrew slave. That's the beginning of the Passover story, right? 
he's a uh, he he kills this guy right i mean this is and you know and this is something you see all that you know, you see his anger i mean he spends the whole book of deuteronomy just yelling at people that's like the 200 pages of this guy yelling at you that's the whole book of deuteronomy you know i mean like you know anybody anybody who's involved in any kind of social justice act is motivated you know the anger the anger is just a signal telling you that something is wrong Right. And so, you know, there's ways that this has been expressed. I mean, I think that the, you know, I mean, we didn't talk about the creation of the state of Israel, but this is like, you know, this is a Jewish response to these, uh, you know, the, the impossibility of, of erasing yourself to the point where you're, you're not allowed to be alive. Um, you know, that's, you know, that's one response, but, you know, for people, um, you know, like myself, who are living in a non-Jewish society, you are honestly walking a fine line where you are sort of, you're always aware of like, you know, and you're, you're, and I say aware, like, it's not even conscious. You know, it's like, as you said, it's like, oh, what are we supposed to do after these people are shot? I guess we'll just have a candlelight vigil. It's like, well, no, there's a lot of things you could do, but you are, you know, you have thousands of years of, of, of sort of information telling you that it's, that you can't and that you aren't going to have allies. You know, and so and so what I'm suggesting in this raising in this book is the possibility that, you know, maybe that isn't true and maybe it's time to be angry. Um, I think that's well put. And um, I'm, I, I just uh, sort of a, this in a comic register personally is that, um, you know, uh, this this uh, these broadcasts uh, up here on YouTube and, you know, there's plenty of YouTube commenters who sound off on things. And um, a couple of ones that I've done with uh, the historian Daniel Bessner, uh, people have um commented like why are you guys interrupting each other so much like this is you're being so rude and i just realized oh these people have never seen jews talking to each other before so uh, you know like american jews are and i've worked very hard not to interrupt you (laughs) but it's very polite and you've learned partly because i'm a woman too that's that's true also yeah so these things get coded in different ways but um you're talking over each other or uh you know heated arguments you know, these are not exclusive to uh, Jewish American culture and probably many immigrant society, uh, immigrant cultures bring this sort of thing over. But yeah, the, the sort of polite wasp um, cultural default that America inhabited or inherited from our, our you know, col- former colonial masters um, still sort of rules the roost. And uh, yeah, there's different ways uh, one could be. Okay, let me, um, you, you provided sort of a segue to the uh, the idea of you know Jews um, basically being quiet or changing themselves in order to not anger the Gentiles. Your uh, chapter about Ellis Island and the myth of of Jewish last names in Ellis Island. And I have I will tell my own personal story, and you can tell me whether this is a myth that <laughs> that never happened or not. But please, but please, so please explain the El- your Ellis Island chapter. Sure. So. Um... My the chapter of my book about uh, about Ellis Island is called Legends of Legends of Dead Jews, and it's about how um, there's this mythology that's passed down in many American Jewish families that their Jewish you know their Jewish sounding last name was changed by some you know bumbling immigration officer at Ellis Island to you know something that sounds less Jewish. Um, you know, and this is sort of this mythology, you know, and it's not, you know, the other ethnic groups have this mythology too. I mean, it was, in, I think in the movie, The Godfather too, um, you know, there's a sign, you know, when Vito Corleone is in Ellis Island or something. So it's like, you know, it's not unique to Jews. Um, but, you know, this is a mythology, right? It's not true. No one ever changed anyone's names at Ellis Island. Your ancestors were not the exception. Nobody at Ellis Island wrote down people's names. 
they were working from ships manifests that were compiled at the port of origin. And at the port of origin, those it's not like this mythic scenario was happening at the port of origin either, because those manifests were compiled from um, from state issued documents. And even and so so this you know this idea that there's like some bozo who's like moving a line along and is writing down your name and can't understand your accent. I mean, also like the other thing is like immigration officers at Ellis Island were like highly trained people. They were required to know at least three languages and other. Um, interpreters were circulating constantly to ensure competency. Like, this is not a situation where people, like, somebody didn't understand Yiddish. Like, Yiddish was like a very common language in Ellis Island. Um, but also, the other thing is that we have court records. Um, the historian Kirsten Fermegwick published a book called um, A Rosenberg by Any Other Name, and she tracks all these court files, tens and tens of thousands of court records in New York City civil court of um, American Jewish immigrants and their children, it's actually mostly their children, going to city court to change their names. You had to submit a petition. So there's records of people changing their names. So um, this is mythology. So I've like talked about this before and I've written about it before. And what was amazing to me was every time I would mention this in like a public talk or write about it in an article, I would just get mobbed by like pissed off American Jews who are like, you're wrong. You know, my great grandfather wouldn't lie. <laughs> and I'm like, your great-grandfather lied, right? <laughs> so, I mean, or, or like, you know, I, yeah, your great-grandfather lied. And, you know, what was interesting to me was like, you know, that these people who were otherwise very educated people who were very skeptical, like these are not like people who are believing random internet myths. And like, but they were so attached to this mythology, right? That's what was interesting to me is that what that tells me, again, the uncomfortable moments are where the story is, is that this story is doing important emotional work for people. And the important emotional work that it did for the American Jewish community is that it masked the presence of American anti-Semitism for like multiple generations, right? Because when you read through those court filings, you find out like people had to, people had to tell the court why they were changing their names. Um, you know, I mean, and like American Jews like couldn't get a job, right? Couldn't stay in a hotel, couldn't like, you know, couldn't get into a school. Their, you know, children were being beat up in elementary school. Like, I mean, and, this is and, like- And you know, you, you know that it's often, the, the reasons given, which are recorded on legal documents, oh, are yes, often yes. along the lines of, you know, for, uh, it, was, it was giving me trouble in business or something like that. So it's not explicitly like the anti-Semites were coming for me. It's, yes. it's more like, oh, I, right. yes. we want our children to succeed in America, something along yes. those lines. Yes, that's right. So, so this is, there's two layers to this, right? There's the mythology, but then under the mythology, you even you see the mythology starting to appear in the court documents themselves, right? Because and this is what I write about in the book, the court documents themselves, people, petitioners had to give a reason why they were changing their name. Virtually none of these Jewish sound, you know, people with Jewish sounding names, virtually none of them mentioned anti-Semitism. They make up other names for it. They say, oh, you know, Lefkowitz is hard to pronounce. It's like, how many ways are there to pronounce Lefkowitz? You know, oh, it's a Cohen is a foreign sounding name, you know, and it makes it difficult to secure employment. It's like, well, I mean, you know, you don't see like, you know what else is a foreign sounding name? Lindbergh. You know what else is a foreign sounding name? DiMaggio. Also LaGuardia. Also Juilliard. Also uh, Roosevelt. Foreign, difficult to spell. Difficult to pronounce. <laughs> right. I mean, Eisenhower. Very difficult to spell and pronounce. Very foreign sounding. Like that's like that's not what was going on here. This isn't a problem with pronunciation and foreignness, right? They, this is a problem with anti-Semitism, and they don't want to say it. So you see already the them. You already see the American Jewish forebears burying this experience. Like they can't even talk about it, and the reason they can't even talk about it because can you imagine the sense of betrayal? 
that the whole reason they uprooted their whole lives to come here was to avoid this very problem. And so if they then admit to themselves that this problem is here, like, I mean, that's just too devastating. They can't do that. And so they don't. And so what you see is them succumbing to discrimination in the process of trying to avoid it. Right. And that's what was so devastating to me at looking through these, you know, these, you know, it's again, not my research. It's uh, Kirsten Vermeglick's um, research on these court filings about how these people change their names. And what you see, though, is also what they did was they did not want to pass that psychological damage to their children. And that's why they created this mythology. Right. And I'm, I, I personally, am a, I mean, I'm a beneficiary of that mythology because, you know, I and people like I grew up being like, there's no such thing as American anti-Semitism. It's like not a thing. You know, like uh-huh. there's, you know, people in this country were just always welcoming to Jews and it's wonderful, you know, so that's like that. And that's like why I think a lot of American Jews are like super shocked every time there's some anti-Semitic attack because they're like, that's not supposed to happen here. Yeah, right? this, isn't that's us, this, this isn't yeah, yeah, that's the mythology. Yeah. Yeah, and so just you know, uh, 1932, for instance, nearly a decade after the closure of Ellis Island, over 65% of name change petitions in New York were filed by people with Jewish-sounding names. The next largest group, those Italian-sounding names, made up a mere 11% of filings. So that seems like pretty good evidence of, of what you're saying. And um, and again, not my research. I want to credit Kristen for Meg, uh, Kristen for Megla, whose right. name I have trouble pronouncing. Um, okay, so <laughs> let me tell you for, my for my family's story, myth, uh, legend, and and you tell me how it strikes you. Which is that? So uh, my last name is Cohen Wade, and so half of that is Cohen. And uh, but the uh, you know great great grandfather or whenever who came over, his actual last name was Kagan. And when uh, he arrived at Ellis Island, uh, they asked him for his last name, and he misunderstood and thought they were asking whether he was Cohen, Levi, or Israelite. And so he said Cohen, and they wrote down Cohen. Now Kagan, okay, I heard the story as like a teenager. So Kagan and Cohen both meet priest. Um, and there are plenty of Jews out there named Kagan. Um, you know, the historian Donald Kagan just passed away at Yale. Um, and, uh, you know, the Robert Kagan wrote an essay in the Washington Post about the dangers of Trump. So there's plenty of Kagans out there. And, um, and how does this strike you? Does it seem like total utter nonsense? Or is it, is, could there possibly be something here? This, so this one even has this extra, extra comedic element of the immigrant not understanding the question. And so it's a little like, who's on first? Yeah, um, nobody asks these questions. Yeah, it's it's <laughs> it's total nonsense. Nobody ever asks these questions. I mean, yeah, no, um, never happened. They had his name on a record. The, the the issue that's going on in this particular story is, and I don't speak Russian, so I don't know the facts about this. But like, G's and H's in Russian are really are really. They're I think they're represent either they're represented by this. I'm going to get this wrong, and one of your listeners is going to know Russian and <laughs> make me look like a fool. But there's there's a connection between the letters G and H in or those sounds in Russian. Uh-huh. So Kagan is like a it's a Russian version of. It's the same. It's just that, yeah, like the G's and the H's in Russian are 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 kind of you know are, are letters that often get interchanged. Uh-huh. So it's that's all it is. It's just like you know translating from a Cyrillic document. That's all. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> that's well, all. It's transliterating well, from a Cyrillic that, document. Yeah. I mean. But yeah, Kagans are Kagans are, Koh- are Kohanim. They're they're descendants of the priestly class from biblical times. Right. Um, yeah. Okay, so are well, Katz, I mean, Katz is another Hebrew name. I mean, that's so Cohen is a Hebrew name, right? And, yes. and, Kagan, and Kagan and Cohen are versions of Hebrew names, right? Yes. And these are names that go back to the Hebrew Bible. Um, okay, you well, know, I, can I, understand, will... I can understand not being you know, nostalgic about some of the names that are just Eastern European names. Right. Um, but, you know, some of these names and they, yeah, they have, they have significance going back to the Hebrew Bible. And also, and not only that, but also like they have religious significance. Like there's, you know, there's different role that one plays in synagogue worship. In, exactly. In many, in many um, yeah. For, so for, for our Gentile listeners who are somehow still paying attention to this, um, yeah, yeah, there's the, the, the sort of three 
I'm getting this wrong in some details, three classes in, yeah. in specified of the, Co- the Cohen were the priests, the Levites were the, the descendants of the people who carried the Ark mm-hmm. and the Israelites are everyone else. And for certain rituals or other things or the certain specific prayers that some of these groups need to, um, you need to have someone <laughs> descended of this to do. And so the, the Cohen's um, uh, are, yeah, descendants of the priests, but actually because my mother is the Cohen and my father was the way I'm actually an Israelite who has the last name Cohen. Um, and so that's, that's my, uh, that's my personal lived experience. Um, okay. I do. I, we've maybe run, uh, running towards the end of our time. I did want to talk about the Shylock chapter. Um, Cause I mentioned before, I'm a, I'm a Shakespeare fan. I've done some episodes on Shakespeare. And um, so this, uh, yeah, the, the way you d- frame this story is is very interesting, but it involves your son um, wanting, demanding to uh, listen to a recording of The Merchant of Venice, um, famous Shakespeare play in which Shylock is the villain, and your <laughs> what happened thereafter. And I guess you know you are sort of taking um, uh, taking the an opposing view to a, a maybe the modern critical consensus that. Well, Shylock is the villain, but maybe he's really the hero. He's not so bad. Um, you know, we can understand why he acted the way he did because it was a very anti-Semitic society. How could Shakespeare himself, the ultimate humanist writer who captured every variation on you know uh, on human life, and uh, the late literary critic Harold Bloom said he created the human um, itself. He created modern humanity. How could he be an anti-Semite? This seems impossible. Uh, so, what are your thoughts? Um. There's a whole lot of apologetics built around this play. And a lot of it has to do with, I think, Jewish readers not wanting to be excluded from this humanist tradition. Um, Really don't want to be excluded from Western civilization. Really don't want to be excluded from this humanist tradition. Um, You know, and I'm part of that because, you know, I mean, I have a PhD in comparative literature from Harvard. Like, you know, I'm like, you know, I'm, I'm all in on Western <laughs> civilization here, you know, I mean, and, you know, so it's like, you know, my son, it's you know, not worth the time explaining why my bonkers 10 year old son <laughs> wanted to listen to Merchant of Venice in the car with me, but you can read about that in the book. Um, it has something to do with Radio Lab, um, but there's, you know, listening to it, it was, you know, I, I sort of had realized how many pretzels I had tied myself into to excuse this, to excuse this. And, you know, and how, and then, you know, I looked at this, you know, you know, 25 years of scholarship since I had learned, you know, since I had read the play, you know, when I was in school um, or in university um, and looking at sort of the, you know, as you said, endless apologetics about this play by, by both, you know, Jewish and non-Jewish scholars um, about, you know, why this is really actually okay. Um, and, you know, a lot of it points to like, you know, this monologue that Shylock gives where he's like, you know, hath not a Jew eyes, organs, dimensions, like, you know, if we prick us, do we not bleed, you know, all this kind of thing. So, you know, I had bought all this and I'm sharing this play with my son. And since he's 10 and it's in 16th or 17th century English, it's like we have to keep stopping it to like play it back to be like, wait, what does that mean? And it's, that's when I saw like just how just how awful it is it's like it's beyond and 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 it's sort of you know you realize how much like mental gymnastics that you as a jewish reader are required to do in order to make this seem acceptable um mental gymnastics that you would never do if this if you know if this were about some other group you wouldn't do it i mean and because i've seen and we know because it's like you know you read othello 
Um, first of all, Othello is a sympathetic character. Um, and second of all, like, you know, I was in English class and we read Othello and we talked about racism. Like, we didn't like say like, oh, you know, it's just the product of its time. Let's move on. Let's talk about how he portrays love. We didn't do that. No, in my AP English class, we talked about how Othello portrays racism. We didn't pretend that it wasn't there. Um, but then, you know, what the real moment for me in that and in, in presenting this to my son was just like, you know, every line that you have to like parse here, it's like, it's not subtle. And, you know, then when we get to this monologue, you know, I played this for him. I'm like, okay, look, here's this monologue that every English speaking Jew is expected to take as a compliment, right? Like, oh, look, we have eyes, right? Yay, we have eyes. And so, but I played this for him and, you know, and then he's like, wait, that's the part where he's more human. And I'm like, yeah, look, he's saying that he's like a regular human and he has regular feelings like a regular human. And my son just laughed at me. He's like, you fell for that? And I'm like, what do you mean? And he's like, mom, this is the evil supervillain monologue. He's like, you know, he, you know, he's 10 years old. All he does is watch Marvel movies. He's like, this is the same evil supervillain monologue that every evil supervillain does, right? You know, oh, I've had a rough life. And, you know, if like, you were me, you'd do the same thing. And that's why, you know, I Thanos, I'm going to kill half the world. Ha 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 right? Moo ha ha ha. And it's true. I mean, that's the way that that monologue ends. Oh, hath not a Jew eyes. If you prick us, do we not bleed? You know, the last line is like, you know, the villainy that you teach us, teach me, I shall execute, right? If you, wrong us, do we, if you wrong us, do we not revenge? Isn't that the line? Yeah, right. If you wrong us, do we not want revenge, right? I mean, it's like, it's exactly that, you know, like, I've had a rough life. And if you were me, you do the same thing. And that's why I'm now going to go kill Batman. Batman's not Marvel. That's DC. But anyway, yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like, it, it made my son recognize that. He's seen enough Marvel and DC movies to recognize the evil supervillain monologue. Uh-huh. It's the evil supervillain monologue. I mean, there's just no way around it. And, you know, it's sort of like pretending that it's something else. It's like, it requires you to do this, like, it's, it's again, that erasure. Like, you know, we did not sit in high school English class reading Othello and pretending it wasn't about racism, you know? I mean, and this sort of like, you know, and, and it's not, and it's, and it doesn't, you know, you can have that conversation without it being about like, oh, we should cancel Shakespeare. It's like, well, no, because then we basically be canceling all of Western civilization because this is like, you know, it, it's just built into it, right? I mean, it's, it's a fundamental piece of it. Um, it's there. I mean, you know, you almost can't read anything in any, you know, literary canon in the West without running into this. Um, because this is how the, you know, a lot, there's um, a book by the historian David Nirenberg that came out about 10 years ago called Anti-Judaism. And he talks about how this is, um, how the sort of setting, the, the setting of oneself in opposition to whatever one perceives as, quote, Judaism is a fundamental feature of how Western cultures form themselves. And he traces this back from like ancient times through, through the modern times through the, and through the history of the West, in which he also includes the world of Islam. Um, and how, like, you know, he goes and reads all the church fathers and all the early Islamic, um, you know, all these Islamic, right? I mean, like, you know, and he's like, whatever, he speaks 12 languages and he knows his stuff. And like, I don't pretend to be able to defend his positions, but it's very convincing, like that this is, there's a role that Jews play in the non-Jewish imagination that uh-huh. has absolutely nothing to do with actual Jews. And you see that. And I'm just like, I'm presenting that to my son. And I'm like, I'm part of this, right? And bravo to him that, you know, he saw through it. He's, you know, 10 years old, he saw through it. And, you know, I, I didn't. <laughs> um, it, yeah, it's, a, it's, it's uh, I like the essay a lot. The way you structure it is interesting. And, you know, um, it, it, the points you make are all valid. Let me provide the, maybe I'm the um, apologist Jew 
um, you know, uh, pushback. Uh, so, <laughs> so okay, well, Shake, you know, Shakespeare, the interpretability of Shakespeare is why is one of the main reasons why we're still his plays are still performed four hundred years later, and so you could, you know. Um, there's versions there's a version you know the ending of taming of the shrew um seemingly uh kate is is defeated and petruchio um puts uh you know shows how how he tamed this woman by uh putting saying put your hand out i'm gonna step on it and she does it she and she does it willingly and that's basically the end of the play you know there's versions of the performance where she flips him up and and the brawling continues um so the the openness of the text is part of why you know, there's every version of Shakespeare is like performed in different eras and with different mixed race casting, et cetera, et cetera. So, so there is that, but you know, it is, it is a text and we, we have it there. Um, you know, it, it's one, it's a stri- very strange play. The fact that it exists at all is strange and we, we need to reckon with it. And I should, you know, I haven't read it since like 2003 or so, but um, okay. You know, so, you know, the Merchant of Venice is not Shylock or the Merchant of Venice is Antonio, right? Or, or um, he Shylock is the a comic is the villain in a romantic comedy, and he's sort of the side character. And if I'm remembering my Harold Bloom correctly, he argues that this is one of Shakespeare's early plays, and that Shakespeare's creative powers were more powerful than he realized. So he he's using the stock character of the avaricious Jew, and I think Bloom notes that possibly um, whoever portrayed this on the Renaissance stage would have been wearing a mask with a giant nose. Um, like so, essentially, it was like a clown almost. Whereas the other characters would not be wearing, uh, would be barefaced, and you know, and when he is came this on, the part it, where you're convincing me that this is better than I think it is. Well, when he came on, people would be throwing tomatoes at this character immediately, like a Punch of Judy show, because here's the Stockville and the Jew. Um, but Shakespeare couldn't help. This is the Bloom argument. Shakespeare couldn't help but imbue the spark of life within this stock villain because those were such were his creative powers that he takes the stereotype. And makes him into a human. So he is a, even though he, he's both a stock villain and he he ends up being silenced and forced to convert to Christianity, and he doesn't get his pound of flesh. Um, he and he, he goes off, and that's the end. And there's then there's like 20 more minutes of this strange marriage plot with these uh, you know, with the cross-dressing and, and, and all sorts of nonsense where you're like, wait, this is still going on. Why why is this happening? But it's like, but all the other characters, with the exception because of Because you don't care about the villain, that's why it's happening. <laughs> Well, because right. certainly the six in the 16th century, they probably wouldn't have been like, "Oh, poor Shylock!" Like, I wonder what really no, happened. No, nobody cared. That was the point. He's a stock, he's a stock villain, in the same way that like uh, Aaron the Moor is a stock villain in um, in Titus Andronicus, and you know he get, he gets an equally bad fate of like being eaten alive by ants or buried up to his neck in the sand or something, being eaten alive by ants. Aaron the Moor also, and one of the other few black characters in the Shakespearean canon. Um, but there's like. Again, this is the Bloom argument. I, I subscribe to it in some respects, not others. And your your essay provides a good pushback. But it isn't just like this is the Joker or uh, or the Penguin or Magneto or something. Actually, all those characters in modern day are given backstories where we somewhat sympathize with them. And in fact, Magneto in the original conception was a Holocaust survivor, um, and so he hated you know he hated humanity because of everything they did to him and his family, and um, that's why he saw himself as you know, a mute, a superior, like the next form of evolution. Anyway, we don't need to get into my nineties comic book theories, but you know, there's the line that always stuck with me from the play is, um, so Shylock's daughter has, has fled and, and married a Christian man. And she takes all of uh, his money along with her. And then uh, Shylock and his coworker or friend or something, uh, another Jewish man named Tubal are 
talking and Tubal tells him, uh, one of them showed me a ring that he had of your daughter for a monkey. So that means that um, uh, uh, Jessica, is that her name? She, she trades, uh, she tra traded a ring for a pet monkey. Um, and then Shalak says, out upon her, thou torturest me, Tubal. It was my turquoise. I had it of Leia, but I was a bachelor. I would not have given it for a wilderness of monkeys. Um, and that yes, is we've got two lines. We've got two lines. Hooray! We have two lines. That's so amazing. Hooray! Look, he has eyes. He also has eyes. It, it, he has yes. eyes also. He has also other organs. Okay, so if we want to say, like, why are we doing this? Why are we doing this? Like, why do we have to like dig in there, there and find something that works? That's what I say in my piece. My problem is not with the play. My problem with is the apologetics, where we're gonna pretend. Where I like, as I put it in this, I was like, you know, why do I have to contort this into something that excuses it? Why is that my job? Well, are we saying? Are we saying? Like, you know, why am I like you know like this like you know abused wife who's like you know explaining why her darling husband beat her up i'm like i don't need to do this no nope, sorry somebody else can go do this i don't need to do it my kid doesn't need to do it like no sorry no well okay so like, and, and, you know like this is the thing like you know it was like, oh you know shakespeare's very sophisticated it has many layers i'm like you know what i have a phd in comparative literature from harvard i am aware that shakespeare has many layers it means many things but you know what this is one of those layers and it's apparent even to a 10-year-old. And I, yeah, so I don't I see I, why, because there are many layers, I have to pretend that this giant thick one that's on the top of it doesn't exist. I, I think it's impossible to say, it would I'm be not absurd do to that. say that there's no anti-Semitism in this play in which the, the, the stock villain of, of the avaricious Jew, you know, demands to cut a pound of flesh from the, you know, holy Gentile. Uh, I mean, it's not just that. It's also that this is like one of the most, this is not like an obscure... Like Shakespeare's got a lot of plays. Like you just mentioned Titus Andronicus. Like there are a lot of Shakespeare's plays that don't get performed a lot. This one gets performed a lot. Yes, a because lot. I think it, I think it, the strangeness of it is, is what attracts people. And and some it's I mean well, that's nice of you to say that that's what attracts people. I don't think that's what do you think people want to see it because they want to see the Jew um I think that there's something unconscious. I think there's something unconscious going on in people's desire to continuously perform this play. I mean Nobody's like, you know, continuously performing like, I don't know, Pericles. <laughs> well, Pericles sucks, but- um, Well, so does this. <laughs> well, but I don't, does it suck? I mean, can you have- okay. Does it suck? I don't know. Does it suck? Let's, th I mean, okay, my 10 year old sure thought it did. I well, mean, we, look, okay, I'm we, if we can say that most, like, that, that most people- There are a lot it, of his- Most people in human history people. did not have a very high opinion of the Jews. Some percentage of those people wrote uh, the, the great works of Western literature. And then, so obviously, their their views in which they didn't like Jews very much sometimes seeped in, and um, so this is gets to sort of like the, you know, um, Huckleberry Finn uses uh, the N word, and so we we shouldn't teach it to children. No, see, no, because I'm not saying that this place shouldn't be performed anymore. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying cancel Shakespeare. Right. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying any of those things. I'm just saying that we don't need to lie to ourselves about what this play is doing. That's all I'm saying. That yeah, we don't I, need to I guess, like I, I, you know we I like we read like I said we read Othello in English class in high school and we talked about it and we talked about what Shakespeare's doing and we also talked about the problems with it. Is Merchant of Venice taught in high school generally? I don't I mean, we I, read I it in high school. Yeah, we read it in high school and they really? told us okay. so much. They said it's actually not you know it's just a product of its time. It's not anti-Semitic because you know look it's so much better than you know the, the Jew, Jew of Malta, Malta where the right, guy's right. walking around poisoning wells. Right. I'm like um, I mean that's kind of a low bar. <laughs> Yeah, I guess. Yay, he didn't poison any wells. He only tried to kill someone and then was 
saved. You know, they they say they prevented him from murdering someone. Okay, well, uh, just maybe- I, I, I'm just like tired of this. Like, I don't need to sit for this. Well, the last okay, okay, let me this say one more. This whole book is what that's what I'm saying for this whole book. Let, that's let what the argument. The whole I, book. I, I'm, I'm I don't need to sit here and talk about how Anne Frank is a wonderful model for humanity, but we're not going to display the Israeli flag with the audio guide because that might offend someone. Right. You know, well, like, I'm not going to sit here and do that. Like, you know, oh, she's a great model for humanity, but we're not letting you wear your yarmulke to work because, you know, that's that's icky. Like, right. no, not going to participate in that. I'm just saying, like, all I'm saying is, like, I don't need to participate in well, apologizing. I, 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 yeah, I mean. That's what I'm saying. I'm not saying this shouldn't exist. I'm not saying we should never perform it. I'm not saying we shouldn't read it. I'm saying if we're going to read it, I don't need to participate in the apologetics. That's all I'm saying. Right. And I. I like I said, but, and, with, some, and I'm very, and again, the, that there's no the uncomfortable moments are interesting to me. The uncomfortable moments are interesting to me. What I'm interested in is you're not the only reader who's responded this way. Um, you know, people are very attached. Jewish readers are very attached to figuring out a way to make this okay. English, right? English speaking Jews are very attached uh-huh. to figuring out a way in the same way that American Jewish ancestors were and, and American Jews today, very attached to that Ellis Island myth. Very okay, well, I'll just say I don't claiming there's no anti-Semitism in the play. I think that's absurd. It's plain, plainly anti-Semitism in the play. You're not making the cancel culture, cancel Shakespeare no, argument. Um, it will continue to be formed. I mean, what I think in, in you know, there's ways we read Othello today that would not have we would the 16th century um, viewers or readers would not have read him. I mean, Correct. you know, Correct. it's possible that he's really Arab and not you know he's from North Africa. Uh, he's so he's not he's not black. He's definitely not African American, as we you know, um, because uh, yeah, of yeah. course, it means something different today. Yes, but it's it's you know, so uh, Raul Julia yes. famously this played means something different today. Raul Julia I mean, played also the way it's performed. I mean, it's like you know, I, I there you know historians of theater who will tell you that like it's only since the Holocaust that people have even tried to perform Merchant of Venice in any way that makes Shylock at all sympathetic. Prior to the Holocaust, you couldn't find a performance of Merchant of Venice that wasn't like all in on like, you know, like you said, like the guy wearing a mask. Yeah. And I think it's even, only after the Holocaust that people were like, if you, if you see like old prints from look. like the late 19th century of like the, the tableau of various Shakespeare scenes, yeah, like the, you know, yeah. the, um, the mm-hmm. Shylock character is like this like hunched, hook nosed oh, yeah. guy. But there's like, there, obviously, there's, well, not obviously, you, you object. There's something there that, that draws audiences in such that the, fi- the final scene with the, um, the absurd like marriage thing where because it's a romantic comedy we need to pair all these people people up and everyone lives happily ever, ever after except for Shylock who's been pushed off stage and never reappears but, like there's a region that when in, in a modern production of it uh, often this is like either excised entirely or you're like what the fuck is going on why is this place still going what is with this stuff with the is it with the treasure boxes or something there's there's something or is that a different place? yes there's yes yeah yes. it's just like there's this thing that goes on yes like, hijinks hijinks and yeah, more hi- why is she why is she now not revealing herself dressed yeah. up as the male judge and well because they're celebrating his demise and the, and they're in and and enjoying his his you know his wealth that they've that they've well uh, and so the modern so stolen. some some people who read or view this play in the contemporary stage are like who are these monsters like you know there's one person on stage who kind of seems like a human and that's the villain and and then at the end you're like this is this is bizarre this the celebration going on and yeah taking you know um 
we're celebrating the dispossession of a uh, of a Jewish moneylender. So I, I just think- I mean, you know, is it possible to like you know do the play against the grain? Yeah, but you are doing it against the grain. I, I mean, mean, wasn't I was, there like, a- the thing I was listening to with my son was a BBC radio from I don't know ten years ago. And I mean, well, I, I assume they performed every line because that's the BBC. You they know? perform every line as the BBC. And I mean, it's not just that, but like, you know, they had some, you know, everybody speaking BBC received English, except for the Shylock character who's like doing a Cockney thing. <laughs> right. Like they weren't trying. Oh, a- and, oh, and then there's like a little preamble before the play starts where like the, you know, whoever the announcer is, is like, you know, this play is a critique of capitalism. I'm like, oh, is that what it is? Well, it's, you know, it, the mutability like, of Shakespeare capital- being that. And my son's that like, could, what's capitalism? Yeah, the mutability of Shakespeare <laughs> you know, makes it such that you could, it. They you keep could talking do about that, usually, there'd be some problems right? with it. But did, isn't, the, okay, there's an Al Pacino movie called Shylock that's this weird sort of half documentary, half performance capture of him playing Shylock on stage or something. This came out in the 90s and I saw it years ago. But like, you know, what, the, okay, Al Pacino, obviously not Jewish, uh, but he is, uh, you know, it's, uh, this, the play takes place in Venice, so it's about Italian Jews, uh, or at least a couple of Italian Jews. And um, yeah, it's, I think it's, the, you know, it's something that people will continue to wrestle with. I mean, you know, just the absurd you know, aspect of it. Is that, people who want to wrestle with it, great. Yeah, if you want to okay, like, well, if you want to this and turn it into yourself. something cool or different, fine. Like, I'm not saying like, I'm just saying, like, I'm not going to apologize for what's there in the text. Right. That's and all, that's all I'm saying. I would just, I would just add, you know, like a bold argument here. The, the, the character that every male actor in his 30s wants to play you know, on, the, on the stage is Hamlet. Hamlet, horrible person. He causes the death of a dozen different people, um, you know, fucks up continually, seems to be, you know, he's possibly a nihilist, uh, thinks about killing himself. This is not someone you would want your daughter dating or something. So, you know, taking these things yeah, as he's like, the prince like, of Denmark. That's true, but even but even so, you know, why does he never become the king of Denmark? Um, you have to think about that. But you know, Hamlet, Hamlet, the hero, the tragic hero, uh, you know, uh, Macbeth. Yeah, but who, like uh, Shylock's not the hero, right? And the play is not right. about him; it's about no, uh, it's Antonio not about him. And- that's what I'm saying. So that's this erasure again, right? So in my podcast, I have this episode about Schindler's List where you know I had seen that movie as a teenager and I rewatched the movie, and I'm like, there are no Jewish characters in this movie. I mean, yeah, technically there are dozens of Jewish characters, but like none of them have more, like even Ben Kingsley, who's like an A-lister, you know, he has like a few lines. Mm-hmm. He mostly just like listens to Schindler bloviate. And then sometimes he types. Like you watch that movie <laughs> and it's like, I mean, the movie is as one of my guests on the podcast, this is like, you know, it's an arena for these two non-Jewish German men, right? The Schindler character and the uh, this Nazi henchman character. And then the Jews are just like our props, right? The Jews are just, they're not characters. They have no agency. Yeah, the, right. why Spielberg, the great American Jewish director, chose to make this his Holocaust project is a deep subject. And, uh, oh, and so I wish you know, uh, you'll have to listen to my podcast. Yeah, next one. So I, I should adventures with dead Jews. I should um, tune into that. The links, so, ago, we did that, that the links to that yeah. will be below. Okay, we we've gone on a little bit long. The fi- okay, I, I just want to briefly mention a piece that you just published in the Times about the last Jew in Afghanistan. Yes, and yeah. um. And yeah, so there's parts of this we haven't even mentioned. You have this long essay. Uh, well, I guess you did mention uh, this Chinese town, Harbin. And you also have, a, a, I think, the longest chapter in here is the story of Varian Fry. Is that his name? Yes. A man, uh, an American non-Jew who went to France and helped get a number of intellectuals and Jews uh, out of Europe uh, by various means and and the yes. uh, sort of the idea of the righteous Gentiles. There's a lot in here we haven't even discussed. But I did, I did want you to talk about um 
this yeah the story okay uh, we you know the collapse of um, american rule in uh, afghanistan led people to return to this figure who there was once two jews in afghanistan under the taliban Uh, one of them passed away this guy is still going and he refused to leave and then eventually they got him out of here so it was sort of a weird comic human interest story about this stubborn old man who no one could get him to do what they wanted to do. So the last Afghan Jew in the country. And then I guess he did eventually leave. And is he, did he go to Israel? Is that, is that what happened? Yeah, actually, I think he's now in Queens. Cause you know, part of it also was that like, you know, he was refusing to give his wife a religious divorce. Yes. It's a yeah, complicated so, like, story. He didn't want to go to Israel because then he was going to like, you know, be, you know, cause that's like, you know, he was going to face charges in Israel for refusing to give his wife a religious divorce. Right. So this, this yeah. is quite a character, you know, yeah, in, I mean, in he's not senses. a pleasant person. Yeah. Um, but and, I mean, yes. Yeah. Okay. But talk about, the argument that you made yeah he's not a pleasant person but i mean you know (laughs) this whole like let's talk about this like goofy guy i mean it's sort of like people who are like oh you know george floyd was a drug dealer it's like i don't care if he was a serial killer right like that's not what we're talking about here right so i mean that's sort of like so what i what i say in the piece is that you know so like these story of like this the last jew of afghanistan because he was this like goofy guy um you know it was turned into this like you know mel brooks moment in like this otherwise like horror story about like the takeover you know the taliban takeover and you know and i sort of just looked at how like it really was like used by a lot in a lot of press reports as like this like kind of comic relief right you know it's like oh this goofball who won't leave kabul and you know he has a pet partridge and whatever stupid things but like what I said in the piece, and my, my piece to be clear, like it's not, it's not about the Taliban, it's not about this guy. It's about, I said, you know, like what, when I read about this guy, what I really realized was like, there are a lot of countries that have had their last Jew, uh-huh. right? And like many, many countries. And the way we tell these stories is part of the problem, right? Because you have many countries that have had their last Jew. And then what happens is decades later, you know, they, restore you know they decide that you know they, these were societies that didn't want the jews around when they were alive but now that they're gone you know they pine for the dead jews and then there's this whole phenomenon called jewish heritage sites which and this i didn't put in the piece but i put in my book you know there's this tourist industry concept of jewish heritage sites which that term is this brilliant piece of marketing right because like it sounds so much better than property seized from dead or expelled jews right like nobody wants to go to that right? Like Jewish heritage site, you know, it sounds so benign, right? But it's like this like ridiculous, you know, thing where like, you know, after all the Jews are gone, as I put it in the Times piece, it's like, you know, the self-righteous act of memory keeping is like so much more convenient without like insufferable living Jews getting in the way, right? And then you have like, you know, and look, I mean, some of these places are, as I say in the piece, like, you know, are maintained by like, you know, people who are truly scholars and sincere and learned people who, you know, have a lot of courage and are doing this against the grain of their society, good for them. There are a whole lot of these places, as I put it, that are like Epcot pavilions, that they're like, you know, selling bobbleheads. And it's like, you go to these places and I, I've been to these places. So there's a ch- the chapter in my book about China is like this because the city in China was, this is a, it's not worth explaining because it's going to take too long, but <laughs> it's a city in China that for reasons that are, you can read about in the book was entirely built by Russian Jews in the 19th, uh, early 20th century. And for reasons you can read about in the book, these Jews lives were, the lives of these Jews were made increasingly impossible until the last Jewish family left in 1962. Um, today, there is one Jew in the city and the, but the government has decided to invest $30 million in restoring what they call Jewish heritage sites. And what's amazing about the Chinese example is that they said the quiet part out loud. They held 
what they called an international conference on co economic cooperation between China and the world's Jews. And the mayor of this Chinese city talked about wonderful esteemed Jews that he admires so much like JP Morgan and Nelson Rockefeller. <laughs> By the way, those people were not Jewish in case you were curious. Um, I mean, he's like, you know, and basically he's like this, when we, now that we're restoring these Jewish heritage sites, Jews will come and give us their money as tourists and also as investors. He just like, he basically just, like I said, he said, he said the quiet part out loud. Yeah, which is it, how it, it's, it's funny, the, yeah, the lack of, of pretense, which wouldn't have happened if this had been in Lithuania or something. And there's also, Correct. usually there's a pretense. Yeah, I don't think you mentioned this, but there's a, there's a genre, I think, is it China or South Korea? I can't remember reading, there was a genre of sort of like self-help books published that were like the wisdom of the Jews teaching you how to like invest your money correctly. And the, oh, like, in China, not, they're like bestsellers, popular bestsellers. Okay, are like, but know, not totally actually written by Jews. Written and, for making so, money. Yes. Yeah, the, I mean, the, it's, the Jew as yes. symbol versus Jew as lived person. It's, it's just a metaphor for something. It's serving this part. It's it's doing emotional work for the people who are there, and for and it's and it's a cynical thing where, I mean, yes, it's like pining for live Jewish tourists and their magic Jewish money. Sometimes it's even more cynical than that. I was surprised. So I've mentioned in the Times piece the Egyptian example, which is you know Egypt is a country that had an enormous Jewish community that predated Islam by like I don't know six centuries. Um, you know, it was in you know all these people were forced out by Nasser during the dictatorship in the 1950s. Um, you know, they all were forced to leave the country. Most of them had their assets seized. Um, you know, so I mean this is and but now you know there's I think I don't know like less than ten very elderly Jews who still remain in Egypt. Um, now that there's basically almost no Jews in Egypt, um, the Egyptian government is now investing all this money in restoring these synagogues as tourist attractions, cynical enough by itself. After, so my piece just came out in the Times yesterday, I was talking to a friend who, who has done a lot of like, you know, reporting from Egypt. And he was like, you know, it, for them in the Egyptian case, it's not even just about, Egypt, about tourists. They want to go to get money from UNESCO. Okay. From the UN saying, look how wonderful we are, how we're restoring Jewish heritage sites, right? Okay, so they kicked and all the Jews like, out, and 50 years later, that, they're, right? they're the looking UN for... Because the UN is like, you know, they, they, um, they're not big fans of living Jews in the UN, right? So <laughs> um, as they've made very clear over the past 20 years or more. Right. So, I mean, this is just like, it's this incredibly cynical thing. And, you know, and, and what I say in the piece is like, you know, when you're a Jewish tourist or traveler and you go to these places, and, you know, and I'm not even talking about the Holocaust here. I'm not talking about, I mean, it's certainly true in a lot of places in Europe and Poland and whatever, but like, I'm talking about like, I don't know, Morocco, right? Turkey, like, you know, these are not places, it's not about, you know, it's not about the Holocaust, it's about more recent, you know, situations where Jews were driven out of these countries. Uh -huh. And, you know, there's this, like I said, when you go to these places as a Jewish tourist, like, you know, you feel this deep discomfort. And, you know, and what I said is like, you know, this is again, that repression, we talked earlier in our conversation about emotional repression and how it's like, you know, you're not allowed to be angry. And I've, I felt it so many times. And what I said in the piece is that in the times is that like, you know, I feel this discomfort that I don't even know how to name it. And I stifle it so much that I don't even recognize what it really is. And what it really is, is rage. Right, because you're, it's, the, it's this profound exploitation of Jewish history. Uh -huh. People love dead Jews, living ones, not so much. And I mean, you see it all over the world. I mean, it's just so pervasive. It's like one of these things, once you see it, you can't unsee it. Uh -huh. um, it, it uh, that would be a good place to end, but I, do you have time to just to talk about the chapter 12, Dead American Jews, part three? Sure. Uh, can we discuss this just briefly? So, sure. yeah, so 
it's so you have two previous chapters in here that originally appeared in maybe a, a somewhat different form as op-eds in the Times after incidents of anti-Semitic violence in America, and then there was this attack in Jersey City, like I said before, about a mile and a half from where I'm living right now, on a um, kosher um, um, grocery store in a predominantly black neighborhood called Greenville, and um, and it turned out that the um, perpetrators were. Well, you describe you describe what they were because I I'm, I don't want to get it mixed up in my head. But the vi- the victims were both there was a police officer and a like Ecuadorian immigrant who was a worker at this um, grocery store, and then mm-hmm. uh, the and then they were um, and the owner uh, of the store who was Satmar Hasid. Yeah, and the and and the victims were the other victims were a customer in the store who was a Satmar Hasid. Yeah, um, you know, and then the two assailants were also killed in this. Uh, you know, and this basically was like a very long gun battle that the you know police had, or I don't know if it was police or National Guard had with uh, these you know the assailants. Um, the so these yes, the assailants were African American. They were from, um, but they were not from Jersey City. I think they were from Elizabeth. Um, they weren't from Jersey City. Um, were they Black Hebrew Israelites? Is that is that their sect, or am I getting this confused with something else? I don't want to get it wrong either. I feel like I want to I want to look that up. They were they were like they were kind of. Um, they were from some ideology where it was like almost like black supremacy. Yes. It was that it was that kind of ideology that they were that they were working from. I don't know that they were like affiliated with any organization or anything like that, but it was I, like I, it, was okay, well, will, it was that it was that kind of ideology though that was yeah. that was motivating them. Um, you know, it was not like and it wasn't ambiguous because like you know they had all these like screeds in their truck. They had posted all this stuff on social media. It was something like I don't know if it was the. I know the one that you're talking about this. It was something like that. Um, it was some kind of like, you know, kind of a black supremacist type ideology, which is yes, not, I, I, not, so not as effective they, an ideology as white supremacy. Yeah, I, okay. So <laughs> no. I'm just go, quickly, I believe they were, they belong to this unusual sect, the black Hebrew Israelites who are um, African-Americans who believe that they are the descendants of, like the true descendants of the 12 tri- tribes of Israel and have something this like sort that. of- These people used to be in Times Square, like syn- yelling syn- Syncretic, yeah. is that how you would just call it? They made up their own sort of combination of various- Something religions, like that, yeah. Including Judaism. And these people also were involved in the Covington um, video thing that happened, it seems like years, like years and years and years ago, but I guess it was like 2018, where these people were like instigating and fighting with the- High school students who are eventually filmed. I mean, people, look, I, you know, I'm I'm 44, and so I remember when these people used to like hang out with microphones in Times Square and just like yell at anyone who looked Jewish. I think they basically the real Jews still and, do. Like, you know, yeah, yeah, it was something like that. Yeah. So yeah, so these people um, think that they are the true children of Israel, and that the Jews, as the rest of the world understands it, whatever are, it is. I mean, it, you know. To me, it's not that interesting, honestly. Like the, their motivations are not that interesting. So okay, but this is that this was an ideological terrorist yes. act, and they wanted. Oh to yeah, kill it was a hate people. crime. It was not like yes, it was a hate crime. Yes. Yeah, they wanted. I believe they had some sort of explosives in their truck. Yes. They they, they, they killed a police officer um, who mm-hmm. somehow was trying to stop them. It's a crazy story. Yeah, this actually, I had signed this my lease for my apartment like one week before this all went down, and so it was somewhat freaky personally. Although I wasn't, I wasn't here when it happened, but. Um, but yeah, so the fact that okay, the fact that the the victims, like half half or more of the victims were Satmar Hasids, um, and the fact that the perpetrators were black, uh, changed the narrative of what we would normally understand the traditional narrative of hate crime in in America, because we normally think a hate crime is is a like racist white person attacking a black person or a Jewish person, not a um, anti-Semitic black person attacking. Um, a Hasid, a Hasidic person who 
dresses and behaves differently than the average American Jew. And so maybe they're, they, uh, it, so the narrative sort of became, well, maybe these people were kind of asking for it in a way they had moved to the neighborhood relatively recently. There were some fears about gentrification, <laughs> you know, uh, and, and you really write about this as with like, reckless anger, I guess, about like how fucked up this is thinking that like, oh, like these, these are humans, these are Americans. And yes, that maybe they dress somewhat differently than the average American, but that doesn't invite uh, or excuse violence, uh, de- deadly murderous violence against them. And I think the fact that the, that this story, well, it it happened shortly before COVID, I guess. It, but um, but maybe not not that shortly. But also that yeah, the this the facts of the case did not fit the standard media narrative about how an event like this plays out, um, mainly because the, the perpetrators are black, and and so excuses were made. And uh, yeah, this wouldn't be this wouldn't have been tolerated if it was black victim, white perpetrator, or possibly even black victim. Uh, secular Jewish, sorry, black perpetrator, secular Jewish victim, it probably would have played out somewhat differently. So I think it has less to do with the with the uh, identity of the attackers, although that uh, you know, certainly plays a role, than the attack identity of the targeted victims. Um, it, I think, and I don't agree that it's, oh, it doesn't fit the media narrative. I think it very much fits, fits, fits the media narrative to crap all over Hasidic Jews. Um, that is very much accepted that uh-huh. um, hating, you know, hating Hasidic Jews is absolutely acceptable as big as is an absolutely acceptable form of bigotry that people don't even consider bigotry. That's how you know that it's completely acceptable. And you see it in the reporting on these hate crimes. And I will. And that's what I wrote about in that last piece. So the one that you're talking about in Jersey City. Yes. Like it is. What was amazing about that attack. And also, um, so, you know, it, yeah, these were, I wrote about that attack and also several others that happened right before the pandemic. There was also a, um, a, a stabbing attack in Muncie, New York, which is right. an upstate New York, uh, you know, town, which uh, with a large Hasidic population in that attack, it was again, uh, uh, it was the assailant was, was a black person, um, who came and it was, but it was like, I mean, this one was really like, guy walked into like a crowded Hanukkah party with a four foot long machete and just started slashing people. Yes. Um, yeah. Like one, and you know, there's, uh, I think five people ended up in critical condition and one ended up dying of his wounds, like several months later, like he was in a coma and he died a few months later. So what was amazing to me is I read the media coverage of those attacks and many other smaller incidents that happened in between. I could not find a news story about those attacks that didn't say something derogatory about the community being attacked while reporting the event. You know, as you mentioned in the Jersey City situation, every article was like, you know, there was all this emphasis in these news articles about this, you know, this Hasidic community was gentrifying a minority neighborhood, which was interesting given that, first of all, the Hasidic community in question was actually fleeing gentrification. The reason they were in Jersey City was because they were priced out of Brooklyn. Right? As, as many and people end up in Jersey City are priced out of yes, Brooklyn. Yes, yeah. right, exactly. So, you know, I mean, this is, you know, so this is like, first of all, like, you know, the idea that this is like gentrification, this is all about gentrification. First of all, these people were fleeing gentrification. Second of all, um, you know, is, I mean, it, this apparently murderous rage against gentrification has yet to result in anyone like, you know, blowing away white hipsters at a blue bottle coffee franchise. Like, this isn't about gentrification. Like, why are we pretending that it's about gentrification? And then it's like, you know, they're gentrifying a minority neighborhood. It's like, these people are very highly visible members of the world's most historically persecuted minority. 
It's not like, oh, they're not visible. They're white people. It's like, no one's looking at Hassan and being like, yeah, they're just regular old white people. You right. know? I'm like, like, no, <laughs> right? That's not what this is about. But yet there's this elaborate attempt to pretend that that's what this is about. And the same thing in the Muncie attack. It's like every news article about that attack was like, you know, there was this zoning battle between Hasidic and non-Hasidic residents. You know, oh, there was this fight over the school board. And I'm like, do we normally settle municipal disputes with a machete? Because silly me, last time I went to a school board meeting in my town, I left my machete at home. Right? I mean, like, that was dumb. The way school board like, meetings, you know, like, the way school when, meetings you know, are doing in America more and more. It's so frustrating. Result of violence, understandably. Yes. Right. You know, it is so understandable that people would get so frustrated with municipal politics, especially a person who, by the way, doesn't even live in the town. I, I yeah. So a lot. It's just like, it's just this this mental is, gymnastics. That they're, so, that okay. You, so I, yes. I, I, you don't bring this up. Part of this, I, there's a parallel in the uh, media narrative about attacks on Asian American and Pacific Islanders, um, often which the attackers were African American and mentally ill. And the sort of and, and well, that, like news, news flash: people who walk into crowded Hanukkah parties with machetes are probably mentally ill. Yeah, so like that's kind of like yeah, that's pe- there. People who so yeah, so there's a long. Well, a long and proud I mean, history. But there's a reason that someone who's mentally who are... ill is attacking this group, right? Exactly. I mean, it's yes. not like, so the know, mental illness doesn't doesn't. The demons in their it. head told them something that those demons in their head had heard before. Yes. <laughs> so there's plenty of people, crazy or not, who decide that the Jews are the source of their particular problems, and um, some of them resort to violence. And it's almost shocking that the guy didn't have a gun because you can get a gun very easily in America, whether you are schizophrenic or not. Um, but yeah, so. I it's I don't know what what else I want to say. I mean, I I, I agree with you and and reading that uh, reading that final piece, and you also note that like the other, previous two pieces were published in the Times, and like you were like I can't publish this one in the Times because they will not take this because the the level of rage that you express in it does not fit in with the like overarching media narrative, like the you know Jew uh, who's ready to forgive um, the the Gentile who who wrongs him or her, and yeah, and you know the. Hasidic people are like the least assimilationist group in America, possibly. I mean, like Amish and Mennonite don't live in densely populated parts of the country, so they're more even more insular. Yeah, they, like these these are Jews who are different, uh, different than um, the the average Jew you see walking down the street. Right, but like you know, they're not these people are not being attacked because people like disagree with Hasidic beliefs and practice. They're being attacked because they're visible. Yeah. The people who are attacking them are not like, oh, I'm going to attack those Jews because, you know, I don't like the way they treat women. Like, that's not what's that's what's happening here, right? They're, yeah, they're, the, they're, the mo- they're the least assimilated, most visible Jews. It's just because they're visible. That's the only yeah. reason. I mean, it's a sort of like absurd, you know, and like this just this absurd, like I said, this mental gymnastics that's like, well, you know, there was this zoning battle. It's like, you know. I don't know why I failed to bring my machete to the last school board meeting. That was like, just really, you know, that was dumb of me. Right. But then, but then it's not just that there's also then, you know, the best version of this is also terrible. Right. Cause like, this is why like, I'm like, yeah, there's no way I want to write for, write about this for the New York times, which by the way, did not call me. I'm their shul shooting, you know, op-ed specialist. They're not calling me about this one. Right. And what's interesting to me about that is that, um, you know, what you have to say in these articles for a mainstream audience is, Jews are the canary in the coal mine, right? You know, when Jews are attacked, it's a might, you know, it's like, you know, it shows there's going to be this collapse, this is a sign of a social collapse. And it's like, well, 
what you're then saying, like, think about how much you have to like denigrate your own humanity in order to say that, right? Because then what you're saying is it's like, you know, you know, we should care when Jews are murdered or maimed because it could happen to you too. It might be an ominous sign that real people might later get attacked. (laughs) Right? People who wear athleisure might later get attacked. You know, it's like that stupid thing they put on the school. You know, it was like in, it was in the in some you know in my classroom when I was growing up. You know, first they came for the Jews, first they came for the communists, and I didn't speak up, and then I came for the Jews. And it's like, well, if they stopped at the Jews, then this all would have been fine. Well, okay, that yeah, and that, they don't actually care. So that's a poem but, by a uh, German yeah, it's a Nemo, priest, right? Yeah, 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 who wrote this thing, and it's one of the most famous, you know, sort of things that came. Uh, uh, famous pieces of literature that came out of World War II, I would say. And um, yeah, I, I believe that it was on some sort of plaque or something in what in a classroom in my high of school. Of course it was. Also. And it's very easy. The same thing about Shylock having eyes was on my classroom, in my classroom too, when I was a kid. I remember reading, like seeing this on the wall, it half nodded to eyes. And I was so it's like, okay, but the, also the, but the lesson of the, and then they came for me. It, 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 like that, I guess. Right, and that's what it mattered. <laughs> Well, most people care about themselves um, more yeah, than anyone fair, else. Fair, and fair. Um, and as history has shown, most people care about their um, the people who share their personal characteristics more than they care about people who share share different characteristics. And um, yeah, but that's yeah. this mythology of like you know, oh, we shouldn't hate Jews because they're just like us. But like I said, Jews did spend three thousand years not being just like you. Yeah, and that's the and point the Hus- of Judaism. And Hasidic Jews in New York City are not just like other new yorkers they are different and if we claim to value difference right that's but that's what i'm saying like this is like you know the idea of like that this is that's what i actually i said it in my piece about the last few of afghanistan too this like lip service to diversity where it's like you know we love people being diverse as long as they all agree with us yeah diversity within acceptable acceptable bounds and this i mean, I, i've actually done acceptable bounds being everyone is just like me but like you know we look like a Benetton ad yeah, or ever, ever, yeah. The, you're essentially a different flavor of Gentile, and I don't know if you've read the recent book, Netanyahu's. I had the author on this show a couple of weeks ago, Joshua Cohen, and that book takes up the assimilation uh, in the diaspora versus the you know um, authentic Jewish life in Israel question in, in various different ways. And I also did a recent episode uh, with a guy who wrote a book about Philip Roth and you know the the assimilationist versus um, a particularist uh, theme is is there as well. So I I, I don't. I don't know. This ain't going away. Um, I feel like, but you okay? But you you close the, you close the 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 end of the the final thing you talk about is is Dafiomi. Is is that how Dafiomi? Yeah, it's pronounced. I and I actually I did another episode with a young millennial rabbi where I was talking about how poor my Jewish education was in Hebrew school and so forth as a child. So I had never heard of this thing um, before. Um, the, you know, the things I was taught in Hebrew school um, were sort of the um, Opposite of the 1619 project, you know, the, the um, George Washington chapter on cherry tree version of, of Judaism uh, that I was taught in Essex County, New Jersey Hebrew School. But um, you, you, you kind of end up. Okay, can you explain what Dafyomi is and how this you, you see this fitting thematically into like the, the story you tell, the personal story you tell uh, in, in the work? Yeah, so so Dafyomi is a it's like what some people have called the world's largest book club. It is a program of study where you read the entire Babylonian Talmud, which is a vast compendium of conversations about Jewish law. I can go into more detail about that, but it's very complicated. Um, it's, you know, it's um, 
printed in these like 27, there's, it's, it's 2,700 pages long. It's like 63 volumes. And they're all these like large format pages. So like a page is really, it's almost like 15 pages of text. Um, so you, the program Dafyomi, Dafyomi means a page a day. So you study and a page, it's two sides of this extremely large physical page, which like I said, it's about 15 pages of material. And you study one page of this text every day um, and you move through the text and you, in about seven and a half years, you finish the text. And it's this program where everybody around the world is reading the same page a day. Um, so, and this happened at sort of like in this time, right before the pandemic and I sort of, right after these attacks we were just talking about on the Hasidic community in New York and New Jersey, there were many, many other smaller attacks that happened during that time. And at that point there, the Jewish community in New York City organized this like sort of like an anti-anti-Semitism rally um, in New York City that like, I think it was like 25,000 people went to it this, again before the pandemic. Um, and, you know, and I, I didn't go um, <laughs> for my own reasons, but I, um, and then, but it was like a few, within a few days of that um, rally, there was a much larger gathering of Jews in my, in my area of New York and New Jersey, which was in the Meadowlands. It was 90,000 people. It was that giant stadium, right? Or was it? Um, I think it was no. I think it was MetLife Stadium in, in the Meadowlands. Oh, for the Fort once was called Giant Stadium. Now, yeah. Oh, now maybe it's, yeah. Now it's yeah. The fort, yeah. I don't know. It's a totally new stadium, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. So right now it's MetLife, but whatever. Well, yes. Anyway, Meadowlands Stadium, uh -huh. um, which is about ninety thousand people gathered there for what's called Siyum Hashas, which is the conclusion of the Talmud. So basically, these were people who had studied for seven and a half years, and then there was a ceremony celebrating this accomplishment of studying these seven, nine, seven and a half, you know, seven and a half years of studying the, of completing the entire Talmud. And I started just looking at these like sort of two gatherings of Jews and being like, which of these enterprises do I want to spend my time on? Right. You're like beating your head against a wall, trying to get, you know, doing these various types of erasure where you have, as we've talked about in this whole conversation, you know, that you have to sort of bend yourself over backwards to get, uh, you know, a non-Jewish society to even like allow you to be part of the conversation. Um, and during that whole process, it's not about, it's not about like, you know, as I said in the book, people love dead Jews, living ones, not so much. Well, what does it mean to live a Jewish life? Right. Because, you know, this isn't like just, you know, an ethnic group or something like that. Right. This is not, and, and, and you know, doesn't even have to be an ethnic group at all. Cause obviously there are many people who convert to Judaism. Um, you know, this is really, you know, this is a, a civilization. Right. Um, part of which is a religion, um, but also part, you know, part of which is like this massive, massive cultural tradition. And, you know, so and a lot of that is shaped by the by the Talmud. So, you know, I had studied Talmud before, like I actually have a pretty I mean, I went to public schools my whole life, but I have pretty, pretty decent Jewish education. Uh -huh. um, I had studied Talmud before. I always found it super annoying because. It's like, it's just very annoying because it's like, it's just, you know, like people say like, oh, this conversation is too much like deep in the weeds. The Talmud is only the weeds. Like that's like all of everything. <laughs> the whole conversation is, it's, it's first of all, it's like the structure of it. It's not like a normal book. Like it's more like, it's like a Twitter thread or something like where it's just like all these people just interrupting each other and like, and then they take it off into some tangent and then there's a sub thread and another sub thread and another sub thread. It's like minutes of a conversation. Yeah, it, and it has a strangely modern aspect that you talk about, it, or maybe like Wikipedia could be another example because yeah. there's like very people are chiming in at various times to say well, this like, is Wikipedia, my interpretation. At least it's like there's a topic and they're telling you, I mean, here there is a topic and I mean, there is divided by topic, but like they're branching off into all directions. It's it's more like sitting down, like walking into a room of like full of like 20 people who are all like involved in this like heated debate. And you're just kind of like walking in and like all like interrupting each other. And they're all in the middle of the conversation when you walk in. So like, they're not like telling you what they're talking about, uh -huh. um, you know? And so like, I always found it just like super annoying when I had studied it before. And I was just like, 
you know, this isn't for me. And also like, you know, I'm a woman. I'm not, you know, you generally women traditionally hadn't studied it. It was very de-emphasized in more liberal uh, movements in Judaism, including the ones in which I grew up. And I was sort of like, you know, this is not for me. But then like, you know, with this, I saw there was this opportunity to, that they were starting this new cycle. This only happens every seven, seven and a half years. Um, you know, and I was like, you know, also the other thing is now there are all these like apps, like there's an app called Safaria where like, you know, they, it's all this traditional Jewish text that are just like on an app on your phone. I'm like, I already am holding the whole Talmud in my hand. Uh-huh. Like, you know, and so I just was like, I'm going to join the cycle. And I started, and I started reading, you know, a page a day of the Talmud. And it was just a completely different experience because I suddenly understood why these people were, what I perceived previously as annoying, what they're expressing in that anxiety-ridden conversation because the Talmud is written in the wake of the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem and the exile of the Jews from, um, from what we now call Israel, right? So it's, it's basically the whole, it's, it's this book that's about this traumatic experience of the destruction of a way of life. And they're sort of, it's just these people who are spending, and it's several centuries of people. It's not just like one moment. It's like, you know, six centuries of, of people arguing with each other. Like now that our whole way of life is destroyed, what do we do now? And they're like, let's figure this out. Right. So it was a reconstitution of the faith, which had most of the observances had been based around the temple in Jerusalem. Yes. The temple was destroyed yes. in 79 yes. uh, or something like that. And it was like, okay, what <laughs> do we do now? We can't sacrifice. We can't do a burnt offering yeah. at, you know, in the Holy of Holies in the center of the, the temple. It doesn't exist anymore. We're not even there anymore. What do we what do we do? How, how does how does this translate into like what the commandments mean for our day to day life? Correct. Yes. And so, I mean, and this is why it's like basically what they did was they turned this like I mean, because Judaism before the destruction of the temple, like we think of it now as this like intellectual tradition. Like there's nothing intellectual about it. It was like they're like killing goats, right? I mean, it's like really like it's a very visceral, physical thing where it like wasn't really about this like yes, it was text based, but it was not like it wasn't about like let's ponder this text and study it and see what it means. It's like let's read this text. This text tells me to kill this goat at this time. We're going to kill this goat at this time, right? And so and then it's sort of like but then after that happens, it's like basically what they what these ancient sages do is they they turn this very physical system into like this they they, they transform it into what I think of as like the world's first virtual reality system, <laughs> where everything that we now sort of do in, in in Jewish practice is based on, um, you know, a lot, it's, it's based on sort of transmitting, transforming these kinds of rituals that used to be these very, you know, physical rituals involving, you know, like killing goats or whatever into sort of, you know, study, prayer and ethical practices, right? And they're trying, I mean, in some of these, you know, the study, you know, the, some of the prayer and the ethical practices were already there, obviously. Um, but what they're doing is they're refining the ethical practices. to so like this extreme, ex- extreme extent, um, and they're refining the rituals to make them about, um, to make them, to, to make them possible in a, in a, in a world without the temple. So what they really are doing is what's, you know, it's, it's, you know, I talked before about Jew- Jewish literature is this like masterclass and resilience. That's what they're doing here. I mean, it's like, you're, I'm reading this book and it's like, I've now recognized this, like what I saw before is this like irritating quality of this like OCD thing where these people are like, you know, so we're going to put on pants and we're going to put on a belt and we're going to put on suspenders and then we're going to put on an extra layer of suspenders. And it's like, now I get it. Right. It's like, why are these people so anxious? Now I understand. It's very relatable. This anxiety is expressing this grief and, you know, and then what are they doing with that grief and what are they giving to, you know, what are they building with that grief? 
and they're building something extraordinary because we're still living it. I mean, that's the thing was most amazing in reading the Talmud. It's like, you know, I get to this page where it talks about like how this particular, you know, this particular prayer was supposed to be said. And I'm like, I say that prayer. It's kind of like looking under the hood of your car and being like, oh, this is what, how, what makes it run, right? I mean, it's like, you know, it's like, oh, this is how it works, right? And it's like, now I get it. And it's sort of like, it was, it's like very, there's, you know, it's amazing to sort of, you know, like, and that we have a record of that process. It's like astonishing. And that, and that also that it's, it is, and the other thing is the diversity of voices, right? Because it isn't this tradition where you're just like, well, here's what we decided to do and this is what we're doing. No, you have all these different people's opinions. Like you can't tell from the Talmud what is Jewish law because it doesn't tell you. Sometimes it tells you, but it's like often doesn't. It's sort of like, you know, there's like nine different opinions about how do we interpret this line? And they they let them all sit there. All the opinions are there. Like even the opinion that doesn't end up being the one that people do, they're all in there. And it's like, there's that respect for the diversity of opinion. It's kind of astonishing. So yeah, so that's, that's how I end the book is because I sort of looking at like, well, what does it mean to be a living Jew? And also what does it mean to participate in a living Jewish culture? Where, you know, instead of having this message of like, oh, we killed all those Jews and now we're really super sad. It's like, well, no, it's like now we're talking about what is it, what psychologists now call post-traumatic growth. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating. And it, I, I um, appreciated it as a closing to sort of, you know, the, the personal narrative that it plays out through the, through these essays. Um, and I mean, how do you see it? As, maybe this will be the last question. We've gone super long. And thank you for spending all this time talking to me about your book. Um, you know, sort of a conflict between like modernity and tradition. So that's very, very obvious, but you're, you're reading the, the but although this Dafyomi um, idea is, is a modern idea because someone yes. like in, a rabbi in the 1930s invented it. So yes. this is not mm-hmm. something that's been happening yes. for thousands of years. Um, yeah. And, but you're, you're, you, you're looking at how shitty contemporary life is in various ways, especially uh, in, in terms of how the dominant culture sees Jews and then you're um returning to you know the uh, the, tr- the written tradition that's 2500 years old and but you you are a modern person living in northern new jersey talking over video to me um <laughs> through the magic of the internet how do, you, how do you reconcile those things is this like i don't know it, it, there's this whole sort of like subcurrent movement happening now with like some people call trad life. It's like, oh, I want to go live on a farm. Like, I'm sick of everything. I'm going to go live on a farm and have very traditional gender roles. You know, um, it involves a lot of it's sort of a cosplay thing, like wearing like prairie dresses or something. And 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 it has various religious aspects. So I think a lot of Catholics are into this sort of thing. But do you see it as a retreat from the modern world, a a, a way to have sort of split your split the conscious the Jewish consciousness? Um, you're obviously not covering your head and wearing a wig or anything like that. Like you're, you're, you're living a modern life. And so you're not part of the like totally unassimilated uh, life that Hasidic people live. Does this make any sense? I don't even know if this is a question. How, how do you think about this? Yeah. Well, so, I mean, you know, the, the rabbis in the Talmud are living modern lives too. Right. I mean, that's actually one of the more interesting things to me about the Talmud. It's like learning all this stuff about like material life in like 
Babylonia in the 400s, right? It's like, you know, they're like, well, you know, they're like, well, you know, in the time of the Torah, they were using this kind of fire. But now that we have this type of stove that, you know, the kind of oven we have, you know, how can we make this kind of oven kosher? Like, they're asking those same questions. Like, you know Uh what I'm saying? They're asking also about like, they're like, you know, well, now that, you know, we are dealing with, you know, the Sasanian empire, you know, things have changed, right? I'm like, yeah, stuff under the Sasanians is so different (laughs) from how it was under the Romans, right? I mean, it's like, you know, you really have so much, it's like, you know, the people under the Romans didn't have to deal with the Sasanians. They're like, you know, now we have to worry about the Zoroastrians. They're like, you know, before it was really a different situation when we were only, you know, it's like, they're constantly dealing with modernity, right? Of course they are, right? I mean, they're, they're, I mean, and also like in travel, like, I mean, there go, there's two sort of communities in the Talmud. There's the Babylonian community and the community that did stay in the land of, in what they call uh, Eretz Israel in the land of Israel. They're traveling back and forth with, to each other all the time. And they're transmitting, you know, knowledge from one to the other about like, oh, how are things going over there? How are things going over here? Like, what are we learning over here that we didn't learn over there, right? They're, co- they're constantly negotiating with these things. And they're like, you know, it's like, oh, well, you know, now that, now that the Babylonians are like, you know, this city is going down the tube so we're going to move on to this city and it's mm-hmm. like you know they're you know there's all they're they're constantly negotiating with modernity actually that's sort of the, one of the most interesting things to me about jewish practice i think and one of the i think one of the reasons for anti-semitism is that jews represent modernity and what i mean by that it's like there's this thing where jews are like ahead of the curve right i mean it's like we were the first people to we were monotheists before anybody else was mm-hmm. you know we were washing our hands before we eat before <laughs> anybody else did we were teaching our kids to read way before that was cool, right? I mean, you know, we were teaching kids to ask questions as part of education, right? Back when everybody else, you know, was all about rote learning and don't question the text. Like we were specifically teaching kids that they should be asking questions and that's what we want from them, right? We were like, you know, the idea of like engaging in, you know, critical thinking is like, you know, these are all like, you know, these are sort of very, you know, and even, oh, the idea of travel, right? I mean, that was something, you know, that the Jewish communities you know, because of this diaspora history, we're traveling much more than most pre-industrial societies were. Most people were just like farmers who like hung out on their farm their whole life. Their kids hung out on the farm hundred years. They're like never left the farm. Like Jewish communities were more urban. They were more mobile. They were traveling. They had connections. They knew people in other countries. They had connections with people in different places. So, I mean, this is like, I think that that's one of the reasons, one, and I don't know about a reason, but one of the things about anti-Semitism is that Jews, that is that Jews represent modernity. Uh-huh. you know so i yeah, think that's, that's sort of yeah i mean and so that's sort of one of the things that you know so and i see that in in studying the helmet so i mean i mean and it's, this is a very dynamic tradition right i mean you know there's you know jewish many jewish practices that are like you know that are very recent you know and there's this like it's a constantly evolving tradition and that's true even among you know people who who have a more traditional interpretation than i do as you say like yeah i'm not wearing a wig there are many jewish women who wear a wig okay that's nice but like you know what i'm saying like there's many you know, there, there always was a diversity of practices in Judaism. And like, you know, that's, that's always been true. And, you know, there's always been a sort of a diversity of like, what's, you know, considered, you know, beyond the pale of the community, what isn't and that kind of thing. That's always been true. Yeah. Um, you know, and this whole, like, you know, modernity versus tradition. I mean, it's like, you know, come on, like, this is like, you know, Napoleon convened the Sanhedrin of French Jews to be like, well, if you want to be part of this, like French Republic, you know, you have to be like, you know, Frenchman of the mosaic persuasion and you have to eliminate, you know, being a part of a Jewish nation, you know, and then that's like a deal that people were making with modernity. So like, you know, these kinds of like negotiations have been going on for a very, very long time. Mm-hmm. 
That feels and, very familiar. Yeah. And, yeah. And the joke version of this is two Jews, three opinions. Um, yeah. And, and, and viewers and listeners may be inspired to sound off in the comments and leave their own opinions and tell us why we're totally wrong and you know, this, this, this was a disaster and Ashanda and- well, so I mean, I'd love to be wrong about my concept that people love dead Jews more than living ones. Like <laughs> I, would, I, I, I would be delighted if someone could prove me wrong on that one. Okay, well, you'll, people have to read the book in order to, uh, you, you know, confront the facts that you lay out and uh, try to prove it wrong. Uh, yeah, I, I encourage people to read the book. I enjoyed it a lot, even though you're talking about a lot of uh, distressing dark things but you do love in it with humor and i think hopefully that it's come through in this conversation thank you for, t- for talking to me for so long and we've gone way over what i expected but the, I, the conversation has been interesting and lively and um yeah i encourage anyone who it, 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 i mean if you listen to all this and you, you aren't interested in reading the book i'm not sure what uh what's going on with you but um yeah check it out and also i would say and also and subscribe to the podcast adventures with dead jews which yes, is and, uh, and on the blogging site there will be it was a link. too weird to fit in the book and also is maybe a little bit funnier <laughs> <laughs> so there'll be a link to the book there'll be a link to the podcast and anything else you're not you're essentially not a twitter person but you have a website yeah, which is right. yeah. direhorn.com where people can learn more yeah. about the book yeah. and uh yeah anything else you want to say before we before we wrap up thank you good <laughs> okay well thank thank you again for taking for taking the time thanks to our viewers and listeners and uh we'll see you again next time all right thank you so much